Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 112 of Through the Years, the podcast reviews Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dane, joined as always, could not do the show without my co-host, Matt Feuerstein, and I don't know why I hit the 112 so hard, I don't know why every number seems significant now, but Matt, we are here just a couple days away as we're recording this from Okada versus Danielson, it feels like that should be like a national holiday. <laughs> Kids should, I mean, it's a Sunday, so I guess kids shouldn't can't get the day. They could get the next day off. They could get Monday off in honor to reflect on what they're about to see. National holiday in just Canada, or do we get it too? Not in America, not in Japan, just Canada, where it's taking place. Damn. You know what? <laughs> I'll give it to you. You've you earned it. You deserve it. I um, we we definitely don't deserve any sort of extra holidays here. We're we're, we're bad bad people, Trevor. So um, I'm glad for you. And you're a Canadian brethren and sisterin and non-binaryan. I don't know what's the uh, what do you, what's the other equivalence of brethren? I <laughs> Slytherin. I, I don't. Yes, know you and the, you and the Slytherins and the oh, yeah ha, and the Hogwarts and the um I don't know uh, what are the names of the different houses in Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, I, this is, I, I've read one Harry Potter book like 20 years Gryffindor, ago. Never watched one. Gryffindor and Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff. That's what I, I got it. Ravensclaw. Is it Gryffindor. even? Is it even? Is it problematic to even be referencing Harry Potter these days? <laughs> I I don't know. I don't know anymore. It's uh. If that's I mean, what we got canceled. If that's it. what we. If that's what we got canceled for, <laughs> man. You know what? It's been a good run. <laughs> I mean, J.K. Rowling is awful, but I know a lot of people are conflicted with, uh, you know, still loving, like a lot of people, about a lot of things are conflicted about loving the work and of a troublesome people. Thankfully, and, and, all of, and all of your Canadian brethren in Slytherin are just as conflicted as you are. <laughs> uh, thankfully, Matt, as a pro wrestling fan, we never have to go through this. Everyone is responsible for pro wrestling. No, yeah, people. Ev- ev- there's no, never, there's never been a problem in pro wrestling. Never been a yeah, single definitely. interpersonal issue that has taken up everybody's time and attention all day, <laughs> at least once a month. Never. Uh, it can. It, it fills my every waking thought, Matt. But I will take a few hour break to cover something else that deserves a few of my waking thoughts, which is the show we're covering today, which is Time to Man Up. It took place August fourth. 2006 at the Sports Plus Entertainment Center in Lake Grove, New York, in front of a reported crowd of 650 fans. I thought this was a little bit interesting because I, I thought I looked up what the Observer reported the attendance of the last time they went to the Sports Plus, and it was the same 650, and that was the show built around um, Christians, you know, first ever ring, and what would turn out to be one of only two matches he would ever have in Ring of Honor. So it's interesting that like this card, which is basically built around you get to see Kenta in the market for the first time, and Joe and AJ Styles did basically. It sounds like the exact same. So yeah, it's, it's funny. It's funny because Shane Hagedorn is mentioned on honorable, on an honorable mention that for some reason Gabe seemed to think of Long Island as the TNA market. Like you had to cater to the yeah. TNA fans in Long Island. Without you know, I don't know what the evidence was to support that. Maybe there was. Maybe there wasn't. But I will say this. Um, Whatever fans Christian drew in May for uh, How We Roll seemed worse than the fans on this show because this crowd, while not certainly not one of the best Ring of Honor crowds, 
Man, it was nothing like that last that last Long Island show, which was just a weird crowd that killed the atmosphere of the show. This was this was not that. So I don't Steve know if it was Carino Quince. might disagree with you. Who who might disagree? Yeah, Steve Carino might, Steve. but but also he was probably planning that, and he was not. Yeah. He I bet he had not seen how we roll, so he did not have that point of comparison to realize this was not nearly as bad. Um, Occasionally, we, we've had. Um, We'll come with like we'll figure out something when we do the podcast and we'll be like, well, what was that or something? And occasionally a listener will then like directly tweet the the, the wrestler involved and like ask them, please do not tweet Steve Carino and ask, has he ever seen how we roll? Like that's a question that does not need answered. Well, now you've just guaranteed that somebody's going to do it. <laughs> that somebody may be me. Um, um, but I, I feel like I can answer that question, Trevor. I feel like I know the answer. Um, the um, funny fact, um, or fun fact, I don't know, could be either one. Um, this was the second of two shows that my dad accompanied me. So I have a couple of dad anecdotes. Nothing too crazy. I don't want to oversell it, but a couple that you might enjoy if you continue to listen to this episode. This is awesome. But I don't know if we've ever covered this, Matt, but in general, like, did your dad, I don't think your dad was particularly a wrestling fan, was he? But like, did he get a kick out of attending this wild world or was he just more like, gotta keep, gotta keep tabs on the kid to see he's not going down the wrong path, like I fear? Well, I mean, I think this all confirmed that I was going down the wrong path, but <laughs> no, yeah, he, he definitely is somebody who, while would never go out of his way to watch wrestling, could get a kick out of it yes um and indulge me i mean listen that guy indulged me so much in my childhood as far as the wrestling stuff because um yeah he i mean let me get all those pay-per-views and rent all those videos and get those video games and talk about it all the time (laughs) yeah so listen he was probably too supportive of my wrestling fan hobby um and i guess that extended into my 20s so but yes i think uh when leaving he would have said he had a perfectly enjoyable time while also not saying, I can't wait to go back. My parents hated wrestling, but um, the only thing about wrestling my mom liked was uh, Mick Foley. For some reason, like I remember one time I was just like watching a Mick Foley documentary and she like sat down and watched the whole thing. And then at the end, she just said, that was good. And she walked away. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, everyone talks about the casual fan. Mick Foley has at least one casual fan, apparently, because my mom hates wrestling otherwise. But Yeah, well, my, my dad always had a soft spot for Mick Foley, too, because the very first wrestling show he took me to was a small indie show at uh, the gymnasium at the Staten Island JCC in 1991, and it was main evented by Cactus Jack versus Sunny Beach. And I, I a few years ago, I actually <laughs> found the video of that match on um, – on YouTube and tweeted it out because I had, I had not seen that match since it happened. It was actually a pretty good match, pretty pretty violent, you know, for a <laughs> indie show in a, in a brightly lit gym like Cactus Jack bladed. Like it was it was the real deal. Like I, I, I so that was quite a way to start my live wrestling going experience in a gym. The other person my dad always liked, especially in this era, was Samoa Joe. Every time huh. I told him I was going to an ROH, he's like, "Oh, is Samoa Joe gonna fight?" Did Samoa Joe fight? So uh, I think he'll be happy to know that Samoa Joe is still fighting. That's kind of adorable. I just picture like you going every time you come home. Did Samoa Joe fight? Dad, I didn't even go to a wrestling show. Yes. Did he? But um, fight Joe speaking, fight. 
Speaking of Samoa Joe, we open with backstage with Samoa Joe. He says ROH is a company of firsts. Three years ago, ROH was the company who thought to put him and AJ Styles in the ring together against each other. They And the announcers will talk about this later. This is, in fact, true that ROH was the very first company to book them in a singles match against each other. Joe says on that night three years ago, he was victorious. And here they are three years later doing it again. Joe puts over AJ, but then he says when it comes to the most violent, direct, brutal man in this company, that honor has always gone to Joe. Joe says tonight AJ will f- will find that not much has changed at all in the last three years. And then he moves on to Brian Danielson challenging him, so to speak. They already have the match key up the next night after this show. But he says if Danielson has any balls at all, he's going to look him in the eye tonight and have a few words with him ahead of their world title match tomorrow. Solid so. extreme close-up promo by Joe. I mean, it was nothing too fancy, but I did appreciate that they kind of went the sentimentality route with the Joe vs. AJ match because, you know, they had basically been for a year having very, very noteworthy matches in TNA, and uh, their ROH matches had always been a tad less noteworthy, but it's good that they were referencing their history and, you know, bringing up all the feelings about this match. Yeah. Um, we go elsewhere backstage to eavesdrop on Lacey, who is on her phone flirting with someone, talking about how they had such a good time the other night. She catches that the camera is watching her. She gets mad. And from behind the camera, we can hear the voice of Booker Gabe Sapolsky reminding her that, you know, she has a promo to do now. She says she can't right now. She's busy. Get out of her face. Storms away. So we'll, we'll get more of this hot storyline later in the night. But that brings us to our opener, a non-title match. Brian Danielson defeats Jack Evans via submission in 13 minutes, 40 seconds, when he made him tap out to, I might say, the world's nastiest STF that I've ever seen. Um, Matt, we've seen this match before. It's fun. It's obvious. It's obviously they're both from the Pacific Northwest, but you couldn't find two wrestlers maybe in some ways that are more different than these two. What'd you think about this one this time? Well, this was a much more competitive match than the first one. Which, you know, on the downside made it a bit less unique and memorable. But I would say it was still pretty well done because, I mean, these guys are both great. And, you know, I, the crowd was, was fine. You know, again, it would, it probably would have been better in front of like a really hot crowd, but they were, they were fine. They did what they needed to do. So I can't complain about Long Island too much. You know, it starts off in a fun way because Jack right off the bat looks at the camera and says, Brian is so afraid of him. He won't even put the title on the line. And that's what you call a punk. And, <laughs> Danielson, he does a backflip into the ring and then flips off Jack, and then that prompts a "you got served" chant, which Jack Evans is just incredulous about. He's like, "That he got, I, you, I got served from that. That wasn't served." Like he just got so upset. He was in full like 2005 Jack Evans mode here, just like way more animated, you know, messing with the crowd, like all that stuff, and doing a bit more break dancing than he's been doing in a while. So he was kind of reverting back to a an older version of Jack Evans, which I appreciated. Um, you know, and, and the crowd prompts Danielson to dance after that. And he teases it, but of course stops himself and gives the crowd the finger. Um, Jared David at one point says that he's seen Jack do moonsaults off the roof of Burger Kings, which is extremely specific. So I believe it. Um, I was going to say, I wrote my notes. That's too specific to be a lie. Yeah. But I know, Trevor, based on questionings and inquiry that you've had over the through the years on this podcast, you want to know if he's ever done one off of Wendy's. Um, 
<laughs> that is some early through the years reference. You have to have been a a basically a Capolicious fan from the beginning to get that reference, and we're not going to explain it. I don't know if you anytime Brian Kendrick showed up on these on, on these podcasts, you referenced it at some point. I promise. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Well, he still hasn't been on. Okay, okay. That makes. God damn it! I referenced it too much. Well, anyway, anyway, <laughs> anyway Wendy's. Um, but yeah, so. You know, Evans does do some offense. He, you know, he grounds Danielson. He slaps him, which makes Danielson get very aggressive. Um, Jack, you know, he gets a spin kick, does his double knees, uh, lands the backflip handspring elbow and missile drop kick, and gets a two count. And at that point, I wrote, he's already got more offense than he has in the entire previous batch, match from Survival of the Fittest. Um, but then Danielson starts going after the leg, stands on his neck, does his multiple body slam attack. Um, gets a few two counts with basic offense, body slams, drop kicks. Does another like real bendy jack stretch by putting Jack's head and legs together. Um, catches a drop kick attempt and slingshots Jack, but Jack lands on the middle rope and springboards into a, a backflip elbow. Um, and then um, Jack hits a, a springboard 450 to the outside. It's a springboard 540 kick on the way back in for two and an inverted falcon arrow type of thing. Um, so a lot of offense from Jack here. He gets, uh, goes right for the 630, but Danielson crotches him, hits the superplex. Um, uh, goes for the cattle mutilation. Jack's able to make the ropes. Um, Danielson falls to the floor after charging Jack. So Jack hits a knee off the apron, which is actually a Danielson move now. Um, but I don't think he was doing it at that, at this point. I'm trying to think if you, if I remember him doing the, the running knee off the apron back then. I don't think so, right? Probably not. Cause was that just, is that just an extension of when he started doing like the Kentonee in the ring? Like maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, because I'm, if I'm so, that would definitely date it. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when he started doing the, uh, apron knee. But Jack Evans does it here. Um, uh, he goes for the Sasuke special. Danielson moves, throws him back in the ring, does the airplane spin. Uh, then he just puts Evans down, hits the roaring elbow, does the the crazy STF that you were talking about, where he pulls Jack all the way back and gets him to tap. Prezak calls the STF Joe's trademark move. Like, I know Joe does the STF, but I don't think he ever really finishes with it. So I think it's weird to refer to that as Joe's trademark. But, you know, I guess whatever they could do to build up the match. So, you know, I think that if they really wanted to have a great match, they probably could have had a really great match. Um, but both times they have not chosen to do that. They've tried to go the more unique route. This was the less unique of the two, so I'd say this was the lesser match of the two. But probably from a technical standpoint, it was better than the first one. So, um, yeah, I guess you could get, you know, you have it both ways. I still prefer their first match, but this was quite enjoyable. Yeah, I have to think that um, – I mean I don't know anything about this, but I, my my guess would be with Danielson doing a 60-minute – book to do a 60-minute match the next night, they probably thought, you know what? Like because Brian at this point has like no feud or anything with Jack Evans, so I have to imagine it was uh, just this idea of, you know what? This is going to be a match where it's probably not going to be that physically demanding for Brian to work a, a Jack Evans match, you know, where kind of clowns on him, takes a few spots. And, you know, we don't have to risk much, but we've seen Jack Bryan before, like we both mentioned, this was more of it. And as always, it's fun. Um, 
it's it's neat to see two guys that are so different coexisting and you get a lot of what you expect what you've seen before from these two like you i think did a good job going over like the the bit that's changed where jack has risen in stature a little bit post dragon gate where yeah he does stand up for himself a little bit more he gets a little bit more offense you know when you know he slaps danielson when danielson slaps him you know like he he's a he's a it's it's more of a progression this match than like a whole new match it's more of just you know it's it's Jack Evans is a little little more competitive. Maybe if these guys wrestled each other every two years for a decade, they could have worked a storyline where eventually Jack is even with Brian Danielson, but probably not because Brian Danielson is Brian Danielson. Um, and yeah, there was that moment you talked about where uh, Jack Evans gets his hit. Uh, the regrettable thing. The last time we covered Jack Evans versus Brian Danielson, as I wrote, well, I I told you when I watched that match that like, oh, it occurred to me that, oh, like Jack Evans could probably suck his own dick if he wanted to because of how flexible he was being put. And I immediately said, why did I say that on the show? That's such a weird thing to say. And then I have to mention it this time because Danielson literally puts – like his head's in his own lap. Like also, you literally- listen, also, you listen to the Doughboys a lot and they, they talk about it. So. <laughs> I mean, D- Jack Evans' feet are literally by his ears, his head's in his crotch, and then Danielson kicks him in the back while he's in that position, which, just, good God. Um, and then, um, I also even like the first couple of minutes of actual, they just did some actual wrestling. It wasn't like, you know, a technical clinic, but it was, it was about as good as I've ever seen Jack hang with somebody in, in a, like technical wrestling. Just even the way he kind of popped with us athleticism out, out of holds, I thought it was just, Oh, that's a cool, neat little thing. Um, and yeah, Danielson here at this point, I feel like he's at this, this point in his world title run where he has his act so down. We probably could have called matches like this for him like even stuff like when the crowd chants same old shit at him you know he's going to like relish it and lean into it like here he then decides to do five consecutive body slams just to you know twist the knife on it the fact that now he always does the he will always do a move where you expect him to go i have till five referee but he never does it the first time he always holds off till later in the match like he's very got hit this, this current iteration of the gimmick down. And this is also another match where he brings back the airplane spin. You know, it feels like we've seen him a few times lately after he kind of retired it. He's done it a few times for lately. And I was starting to think, I wonder if the, the airplane spin for Danielson is like the McRib where it goes away for a long time, but then it comes back for an entire season. Like, you know, you'll get the, you'll, whenever the price of airplane spins is low, Danielson buys a lot of them and then stockpiles them and uses them all over the course of a month. He should, he should like change the name of his airplane spin to the vegan McRib. <laughs> um, what if, be worse than the real what McRib. If, what That's if, right. I said it. I was going to say, what if they just do Danielson versus Okada and they just, they watch this match beforehand and they're just like, let's just do this. Let's just do a carbon copy of all of this match with Okada playing Jack Evans. <laughs> he does the, uh, I, I, the, the handspring to the outside, all that stuff. 
I was just talking to someone the other day in DMs, you know, this, that, that, that talk, apparently talks to Danielson. We should say, could you please tell Brian Danielson that he has to do an airplane spin against Okada in the main event of Forbidden Door? Like, I have a feeling that would do it. Do it. Text him. Text this person right now. I, I, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. But I mean, you have to think that would kind of appeal to Brian Danielson because I feel like Danielson's one of those guys that likes to zig when people expect him to zag. I like, I'm, I, I, I bet you could sell it to Danielson. Like, everyone thinks it's going to be this brutal, super serious match like and not that you you shouldn't have that but what if you just put a goddamn airplane spin in the middle of this like in what fact, if you do I, that like i i would ex- i would i would think that danielson would be so apt to think like that that even if there is an airplane spin on the match uh in the match on sunday unless he specifically says this is for you trevor i will assume that he did not get that idea from us and he was just going to do it anyway because <laughs> yeah, that's that's danielson's style um, yeah, but so please, I but please well, someone tell Danielson at some point in the match to say, this is for you, Trevor, and do an airplane spin. <laughs> He'll be like, why is he talking to Ricochet? But, in, um, in the biggest, in the biggest dream match of our lives, Trevor Dane will get a mention. <laughs> Just like Rob Naylor got mentioned before he was involved as a, in, inside wrestling in the super famous Necro Butcher versus Samoa Joe match. Yeah, everyone wants their Rob Naylor, Joe Necro moment, but, uh, Anyway, this was good. I agree with you, Matt, that this was good, but it was not – it didn't quite have that – it wasn't quite as good as the first Jack uh, Danielson match just because, yeah, that one was so in one direction it made it really unique. This is a little little closer to the middle. It's still very you know distinctive. Jack still gets beat up, but yeah, still good. Um, that brings us to our second match. Christopher Daniels and Matt Seidel, scored to the ring by Allison Danger, defeated Irish Airborne of Dave and Jake Christ in 13 minutes, 35 seconds after Daniels pinned Jake Christ after this combination of moves where uh, Seidel hit uh, Christ with a standing moonsault, and then Daniels did the best moonsault ever. So this was uh, Daniels and Seidel's first match together as a tag team after they did that little angle where, you know, Seidel and Daniels wrestle a million times after Seidel finally beats Daniels. He's like, hey, we could be tag partners. And so I will. I wrote my notes. This is the first match they've ever had together in Ring of Honor as a tag team. And it's also the only one they need to wrestle before Ring of Honor gave them a tag title shot later this same month. So, again, that shows you how thin the uh, the tag division in 2006 Ring of Honor was at this point where it was like you win one match. You, you you're already in line because we got we we don't have teams. We, you, you're you're brand new, but we need you right now. But but you, but you know but you know what's funny? You say it was thin, but it's still probably the deepest one of the deepest it's ever been at this point. Like in all the time we've been reviewing it, they have they have not ever really had a deep tag division. I'm trying yeah. to think of when it would have been at its deepest by this point. Maybe 2004. Oh, I don't even know. Um, you there know, were times where there were more low-level teams like uh, yeah, the Ring yeah, Crew yeah. Express, Carnage Crew, right. guys like that. But in terms of like top-level teams where Ring of Honor would be confident like putting them in a semi or main, yeah, you're you're probably right, actually. Yeah. Um. So I thought this match was entertaining enough. It was good. Get ready to me to say good on the patented Trevor Dame average, above average, good, very good, great level of ranking matches a lot of goods on this show like a ton of them three and a quarter to three and a half star matches in my opinion we'll see if matt agrees or disagrees but i will also say something feels 
off about, a little bit off about this. In terms of structure, it's pretty standard. Most of the match is each side having one guy having a longish sequence where they're isolated, and then we get the back and forth final minutes where everyone's in trading spots. But there's something here that just felt a slight bit hitchy to me in a lot of the movements, guys, that are just a little awkward in terms of positioning or having to wait an extra second to figure out what's going on. And it has also one of my huge pet peeves. And we'll get to, there's another pet peeve that of mine on the show to two, two different name pet peeves, but this one, which is guys tagging back in after they just tagged out after they were uh, being isolated for minutes on end, which I actually think you expressed that pet peeve more than me. So I shouldn't say this one, my pet peeves. This is just me. It's a Matt pet peeve that I borrow from time An official to time. through the years pet peeve. <laughs> But this match is all action. It's not a show-stealing breakneck pace, but there's no, no, really no slow bits. Nothing really on the mat even. It's just moves, lots of quick tags between partners, double teams. It does feel a little bit exhibition-y in the sense that it doesn't really feel like it tells a story more than, hey, this is the part of the match where it's time for your team to do all the, all your cool offense. This is the part of the match where it's our time to do all our offense, and then we'll figure out something to do on the finish. And also it was a match where I was watching, I was feeling like, Irish Airborne continued to be fine in this run, but I was also like, this was the match where I was kind of like, you know what, you know, when they get phased out, I'm not going to miss them. Not not to sound harsh, I mean, but it's just like, you know, a lot of their offense is, is kind of neat, but it also borders on kind of too cute to just for cuteness sake, like without being that cool, like just extra springboards and flips and doesn't really, a lot of times their moves don't really look that impactful. And then on the other side, I thought Seidel continues to look really good in his execution. I thought Daniels here, you know, he's used to so many matches where he's kind of the guy that's slowing things down and taking it to the mat for a while. I thought he did really well. Of kind of just, this was a match where there really was no slow bits. It was more just spots and he, was perfectly comfortable back in that role too. So overall, good match, probably a tiny bit better than all my nitmit picks make it sound, and certainly for a second from the bottom match, you know, good enough. I think you like this a little bit more than me. I thought it was mostly just okay, um, mainly for the quibbles that you had. Like, I think Irish Airborne just was, I don't know, they just didn't have the smoothness down to keep up with Seidel and Daniels in this type of match. You know, I, I do enjoy their, like, wacky arm drags and stuff that they do at the beginning. And I enjoyed the beginning. And I thought the finish was very good. The, like, the last, um, the last couple spots. But there was, like, just some moments in the beginning. A, uh, like this weak double team neck breaker that they did on Daniels. Um, there was just, like, a kind of a messed up double teaming, um, um, with, uh, like, over on, uh, Seidel. Like, just, I don't know. There was just something off about a lot of the middle of the match. There was uh, this, Dave did this like rolling senton from the apron and then he rolls right into a cabrada from the other side of the ring, um, which was very conceptually impressive, but the execution just was just off to the point where, you know, maybe it shouldn't be going for stuff like that just yet. I, I don't know. I just, I really did like the finish a lot. Um, so that elevated the match, but I still think it was just okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm definitely conflicted about Irish Airborne, but I know they're only going to be around for what, like another month at this point. No, I think they wrestle until a few months into 2007. They, they don't sp- win sp- much sporadically then, because I don't think they come to the East Coast much anymore after. Yeah, uh, maybe. after that, after this period. You're thinking of young live Matt. You're thinking of his sake that Matt, who buys the tickets and attends to the shows in his area, will not have to see much more Irish Airborne. But we will have to see a fair bit more. But um, 
We go backstage to Nigel McGuinness, who reminds us that he's still the Ring of Honor Pure Champion, even if Danielson beat him recently. Um, he, and there's, he's still the best champion in ROH, period. No matter what anybody says, uh, Nigel, who's been calling, you know, Danielson a clubfoot clam digger for so many shows now, has a, debuts a brand new nickname for Danielson, calling him a window licker. So maybe he's a big Apex Twin fan. And he <laughs> says he doesn't, he doesn't need to resort to cheap tactics like this, going, like going under a ring and winning with a small package like Danielson did against him. He says tonight, he says he's going to kick Danielson's ass, that wanker. Or Delirious has asked that wanker. I'm sure, I'm sure he thinks Danielson's a wanker too. Uh, Nigel ends by saying that while Brian claims to be the number one contender to the pure title now, Nigel still thinks he's the number one contender to the world title. And when he beats Brian, he's going to unify the belt. So they, we're, yeah. we're full steam ahead on push, pushing towards that. They've done a great job setting up the unification match and the pretense for it and all that. Yeah. They each have one win each, on each other, but each time the other, the guy who lost their title wasn't on the line or, in various ways, at least – well, the first time I guess both titles were on the line, but they designated because um, Nigel won by count out that he couldn't win the world title on a count out. But anyway, that brings us to the third match on the show. Colt Cabana defeats Claudio Casagnoli via pinfall in 10 minutes, 23 seconds, with what I described in my notes as some kind of counter cradle thingy. Um before the match, Cabana gets on the mic. He tells Claudio that he's going to give Claudio the benefit of the doubt that he's no longer hanging out with those CZW jerk-offs and that he's now a ROH contracted wrestler, which means he's one of the best wrestlers in the world. He says, Colt says, I want a perfectly contested good wrestling match, and I'd like to have one with you, Claudio. He offers a hand. They actually shake hands. Colt puts the mic away, and then in a funny little moment, the bell rings, and then Colt realizes, oh, I forgot to say something. He grabs the mic again, and he says, I'm still going to beat you, though. And then puts the mic away. So I thought that was a little cute moment. But uh, Matt, was the match a little cute moment or something different? Um, well, first of all, I find it amusing how many Claudio matches over the past few months they've had to like explain why it's going to be a wrestling match. You know, like they did that <laughs> with Joe. I feel like there was another match where they did it too. And you know, then they also actually had one with Daniels and Whitmer too, where it's like, yeah, we, we're just going to have a wrestling match, and here's why. It's it's just interesting. I but like you said, it's that obsession that Gabe had with explaining in detail, and you can't fault them for that, right? So, um, as funny as it is, I guess it's nice. Um, that said, um, this is one of those cabana matches where it's just so slight that it's very hard to get too into it, you know, because they're just, they're just having so much fun and being silly, and I wouldn't, it's, you know, it's it's a comedy match, but they also sort of want you to get into it by the end. And so I think the comedy makes it hard to get into it or really care much about who wins. Um, so I, I don't love it at this point. I feel like I've seen it too many times. But that said, it was very competent and well done, and there were entertaining parts. Um, the most entertaining part definitely involved Todd Sinclair you know, there's a spot early where like Claudio gets, Claudio's on the mat and he does a head vice and won't let go. And so like Sinclair checks on it. Cabana's like standing up and Claudio's on his back on the mat with his legs around Cabana's head. And somehow Cabana gets Sinclair's arm caught between Claudio's legs and Sinclair gets flipped over as Colt escapes. And so, you know, Sinclair's always game to do these comedy spots. And actually, he does a good job selling the arm as he continues officiating. He keeps, like, looking at it and shaking it off and stuff. <laughs> um, but so, you know, they, they start with the British wacky reversals, move into more mat-based stuff, 
do a lot of these, um, you know, reversals. And, you know, there's a thing where Colt baits or Claudio baits Colt in by offering a handshake, then starts attacking with strikes. At some at some point, they're on the outside, and a fan yells, "Eat something, Claudio!" And I'm just like, "Are you trying to imply that Claudio Castagnoli, of all people, is too skinny?" Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I know he wasn't as big as he became, but geez, like, I like, I don't know. People are people are uh, are very um, nitpicky and critical to if you're going to say that Claudio needs to eat more. Um, but I know, yeah, he does have a lean waist, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Stop body shaming somebody with a stereotypically incredible body, wrestling fan. Um, at some point during the match, the crowd starts chanting, shut the fuck up at some fan. I don't even know what the person was saying, but it obviously made this crowd unhappy. But yeah, then they just, they just, you know, go into, you know, Cabana hits the Cabrada, hits the flying asshole, which is funny that I'm just saying that like it's nothing, but he does. Um, and then they do a bunch of reversals, and like you said, Colt gets the flash pin with whatever version of a wacky cradle he does this time. So yeah, um, they were trying to have a light and entertaining mid-card match, and they accomplished the goal, but I don't know. I'm kind of over these matches now. I want to see Claudio start having, like, kick-ass Claudio matches. See, I actually enjoyed this match a fair bit more than you. I actually felt like... I do agree sometimes with cult comedy matches. Sometimes, you know, you can feel like, oh, you've seen a lot of this before. I actually thought this was one of the more fun cult comedy matches I've seen in quite a while. I thought the comedy was pretty good, and I thought the mat work was I enjoyed was you know these uh, it was fun watching these two guys take it to to the mat too I thought um you know the comedy has some spots you don't see as as often from Colton R H I'm sure he, nothing is completely original but like like you mentioned the the spot where Todd Sinclair gets caught you know in the submission and then Colt like sneaks away and plays the role of the ref and does the five count for Claudio to release it the hold on Todd Sinclair thought that's funny you know that moment where you know I've seen. Colt do this before, but not too often, where he does the alternating which arm he raises to kick out, and then he lines it up so he can, quote-unquote, accidentally nutshot Claudio. I thought the mat work, again, I, I, I like the mat work. I thought that was, I you know, these guys are adept at it. And I was kind of thinking watching this match, like, for some reason, it feels like more impressive to you when I see, like, either taller people or, like, thicker people do mat work than, like, average or small people and then i thought well is that actually more impressive like is it easier to do mat work if you're like like gangly is is it tougher i know at least if you're thicker it's probably more difficult to do some mat work things because i remember as a kid the, the things you get obsessed with as a child wrestling fan I, mean, I remember for like weeks leading up to bret hart versus yokozuna i was like how's bret gonna be able to get the sharpshooter on yokozuna like is it physically possible and like that just really concerned me and so i know at least in some respects some things being bigger makes it tougher but for some reason i was i, I don't know i was a little extra captivated by the mat work even though it wasn't like crazy the best you've ever seen and but i do agree with you at the end where it, the match kind of actually goes down those last few minutes where they try and get more serious. A lot of times when I'm watching a comedy match, you're waiting for that like moment where they kind of flick the switch and go, okay, comedy's over. Here's where the real match starts. I actually was a little disappointed when they flicked the switch because I felt like the most fun part of the match was all the comedy and mat work. And when they decide to do like more moves, that's just Claudio focusing on Colt's arm. I mean, it's fine. And they only do it kind of fair, pretty late in the match. But I was kind of like, this isn't as fun as the first part, but either way, I like this more than you, but definitely for people trying to gauge what you think it's, it's a cult cabana comedy match. If you've, your mileage will be determined 
on how much you like those, but all, and how Did, sick of them or how many you've seen, maybe. Do you see what I'm saying though? Is about like you kind of like feel like Claudio is not being used to his full potential at this point. Like he has he's a lot more to offer, and obviously he will eventually be used much more to his potential, especially when we hit like 2007 and stuff like that. But I, I still feel like I'm just like kind of waiting for it, you know. Yeah, and I do agree in the sense that I feel like Claudia was was you know had was a little bit better than I remembered on like the first babyface run as the Hay guy, and I think we both agree that when he turned heel, for whatever reason, this whole run his in ring performances haven't have kind of lost something, and, and and you know also he's been all involved in the CCW feud that's not playing to his strengths, and I could get your feeling of like we haven't seen Claudio just have like a good straight up wrestling match not in probably quite a while, where he really shines not probably since the um nigel match at best in the world um in back in uh, march of 2006 that's probably the last like wrestling match that claudio had where i was like oh this is damn good and coincidentally that was basically right before he turned heel and joined czw and the other question that i have for you is how impressed were you with the way that bret hart was able to get the sharpshooter on yokozuna Oh, so impressed. You know what? I miss, I'm, you know, I hate to be one of those people, old people now that is like, you know, things were better when they were actually shittier, but like, I do miss like when my parents wouldn't buy me a pay-per-view having to wait till like that week's superstars to find out what happened. And then I just had to imagine it and they would show you like a few still shots. They wouldn't even show you moving video and there was no internet to see. And then I would have to wait like the months it would take for the copy of the of like re- of WrestleMania to show up at the at the video store. Like there is something as much as I you know still enjoy wrestling and how much I like the convenience mat. Um, there is something I, I I will never be as excited again for wrestling as a, as a young Trevor Dame was waiting months to see what it looks like for a large man to be put in the sharpshooter. You know I can sort of relate to that a little bit. Like um, I was. You know, much more spoiled than you, I guess, in terms of getting being able to get the pay per views, uh, especially you know WWF, and then in certain eras I would do more WCW, but mostly WWF. And um, but you know, like I wouldn't get every promotion's pay per view, so it's kind of funny because like if I there was a pay per view that I didn't see and I would just read recaps of, and this actually extended to even like this era when there were like ROH shows and you know, Chicago or whatever that I didn't go to. And I would just like imagine what the show was like. You know, it always sounded cooler, like even than what it would end up being when I finally saw it. Like there was just something about, even if I knew what happened, just reading the recaps or even like if you got like the old like Pro Wrestling Illustrated or WWF magazine and and saw the pictures, like it, you just like filled in the gaps in your mind. And sometimes actually seeing it would be like, oh, this wasn't as good as I realized. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of interesting, like that. There was there was just something about being, you know, having that kind of I don't know a lack, I guess, of of access that made yeah. things seem more special. Uh, you know, and and kind of to the same note, I I as far as being thinking things were better when they were shittier, and I know I'm not the only person like this. I miss the old days of. TV pacing of wrestling when there wasn't that much wrestling and you kind of were deprived a little bit and every show was just 
hyping up the big show. And that was definitely yeah. a thing that the WWF did back in the late 80s, early 90s, which is, you know, the first wrestling I saw. And they, they always say, right, the first wrestling you saw has a big influence on what you like. And I just remember because those shows would just be like, you know, completely, you know, disposable squash matches. And then just like, you know, backstage segments where they would just have promos and videos and graphics promoting the next big event, pay-per-view, WrestleMania, SummerSlam, whatever. And you would just get so hyped for that show because it was what everything was about. To the point now where it's like, I watch, you know, or, or follow AEW a little bit, and there's a pay-per-view like Forbidden Door, which seems so much better than any show like ever on paper. But there's a big part of me that's just like, oh man, I wish that they just announced these matches sooner and just had like constant promos talking about them instead of all rushing it out in in a few couple days. And I'm not even saying that would have been better, but it was just, it just, it would hit me in the nostalgias to just get that, like that old version of hype that, you know, again, I don't even know if that would be more effective, but it is just... Yeah, I, I'm old. I'm this is the this is the last episode we're doing before I turn forty, Trevor. And oh so, my god, yeah. So I feel like really nostalgic for um, I don't know my my youth when things were less uh, stressful and upsetting. So that's uh, <laughs> that's me just bearing my soul right now. But no, anyway, uh, point little... point is I went on a bit of a tirade there, but <laughs> I get what you're saying, Trevor, and I'm yeah. old. Those are my two points. You know, th- this show we probably – I was looking at we probably like um, – it's probably going to be naturally a little bit shorter than some of our episodes. So I thought, you know what? We have time for a good off-topic tangent. And also I will just say as someone that's a little more than a year younger than you, when I turn 40, that will be the end of the show because I expect to just have a midlife crisis and walk into the sea and disappear. Tre- so, Trevor, uh, Trevor, uh, Trevor, doing this, <laughs> Trevor, doing this podcast is our midlife crisis. <laughs> well, then I started it way too early because we've been doing this for over half a decade. Or we're gonna, but, um, or we're gonna die young, one or the other. <laughs> um. So yeah, I'll, okay. I'll have one random thing to get us back on track. Maybe one reason I like the Colt Cabana Claudio match more than you, other than I think you just laid out a good case for being disappointed that Claudio isn't having really great regular matches during this period of his Ring of Honor career. I like whenever Colt does the rare drop down in wrestling that actually works where he literally drops down and his opponent just trips over him. Like I, I, that's one of those spots that I like probably more than 90% of people. I, I get a big kick out of the drop down that actually works. But um, next we join AJ Styles backstage AJ, like Joe, notes that Ring of Honor was when they first met in a singles match. He says they've had great matches here before, but tonight is different. After night, AJ says he's leaving ROH for a couple of months, and he has to leave on a high note, which means beating Joe. I'll I'll say right here, I'll let you guys know if you don't know your ROH history. By couple months, AJ means um seven and a half years, because he won't be back till early 2014 after tonight. And it's funny, because so, the way that they actually talk about it at the end... They do sort of talk about it like this. He's gone for pretty much – he's gone, like basically permanently or for a really long time. For some reason, AJ framed it differently here. So I don't know if they realized after the recording that he was going to be gone for longer than they thought or if AJ just couldn't bear to say it himself. I don't know which. Yeah, I I wonder if it was a thing of maybe they thought we don't want a hard goodbye because like maybe we'll book him in six months and then, of course – in 2007 is when they, we have the really more definitive TNA ROH break where like everyone in TNA 
gets pulled. It's because and and I think that, it's, be, it's because ROH is doing pay per view, right? And they're yeah, like, yeah. we don't want to be, we don't want to have our people on like a competitors um, uh, show. But yeah, so I was thinking maybe they were thinking in the back of their mind, like we're not going to book him for the rest of 2006. But hey, you know, you, we can't go too definitive because maybe in early 2007 we'll decide, hey, we can book AJ for one match because that is something in in way down the line they will do again for stuff like. Way after Homicide leaves, they'll bring him back. In fact, for Gabe's final shows with Ring of Honor, you know, for a one-off, you know, it's, it, it is something they are willing to do. But either way, we get our ROH World Tag Team Title Ultimate Endurance Match. Austin Aries and Roderick Strong, the champions, successfully defend their titles when they defeat Adam Pierce and BJ Whitmer, the embassy of Jimmy Rave and Sal, Sal Renaro, and the Rottweilers of Homicide and Ricky Reyes. In what Cage Match says is 34 minutes, 47 seconds. And usually for my times, I use Cage Match, but I also, when I rewatch the shows, try and, I don't do the Green Lantern fan, have a stopwatch, but I try and keep a rough idea because occasionally Cage Match is wrong. And so for you, you listeners, I will, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll let you be smarter than cage match cage match i'll note cage match says this match is almost 35 minutes it's really a little less than 20 minutes at least on the dvd i was like whoa i was shocked because i usually look at the cage match time first and i was like whoa the match is already over but anyway the falls uh, I, like I, this. Am, I am almost positive that it was not like 15 minutes longer than it was on the dvd i'm almost positive yeah. they didn't like just like dramatically cut this match down yeah it didn't feel like there was any giant edit in this or anything um so in the scram- first fall was the scramble match. The Rottweilers eliminated the embassy when Homicide pins Renaro after a lariat. The second fall is the tap-out submission fall. Adam Pierce and BJ Whitmer lost that fall, not via submission, but they were disqualified when Adam Pierce punched Homicide with a chain-wrapped fist in front of the referee. And then the final fall, the, just the st- regular tag match, Aries and Strong eliminated the Rottweilers when Aries and Strong double-pinned Homicide after Steve Carino hit the ring, hit Homicide with a roll of quarters, and then, boy, we talk about things that, like, come back in vogue just as we're covering them through the years. Ring of Honor, I mean, AEW, you know, they've been having Juice Robinson do the roll of quarters spots multiple times, and now we see it here again and then um anyway he hits um homicide with the roller quarters and then aries and strong do the combo power bomb top rope drop kick so uh since this is the whole idea of this double shot weekend is you know aries strong gonna prove they're the best tag team by doing two ultimate endurance matches this weekend against six different teams and since this is the first of two ultimate endurance matches we're going to cover over the next two episodes i might as well start with my usual matt ultimate endurance preamble where i tell you that I like the basic idea of the ultimate endurance match, which is it's a four tag team elimination match where each fall has a different step. I think that's fine. Could be even good, but the stipulation choice is always, I just think it's so weird where the first fall is is a scramble. And in a way that makes sense because it's four teams, which are kind of a chaotic amount of people to corral anyway. So it makes sense that scramble is basically just like hey, ignore tags, but it also feels kind of meaningless because I feel like all matches with this many people in ring of honor become a scramble, whether they designated that or not. Um, second fall, I always think the submission is the submission fall, which I always feel like plays really badly, usually in a multi-way tag, especially when you've just seen a crazy scramble. And especially because a lot of times in these ultimate endurance matches, the teams that are left aren't really known for submission wrestling in the first place. And then the idea of in a match where the ent- the whole thing is every step's a different stipulation. And then you get down to the final two teams and the final stipulation is regular tag match. That's not, that's not a stipulation. That's no stipulation. It's yeah. just such a limp anticlimactic way. It, right? should, like, it, should, not- it should be like 
if you're going to do it this way, like, basic rules, four corners match to start, scramble, and then, like, street fight brawl. Like, that's pretty pretty much how you can escalate these matches. The submission thing always kills these matches. It never works in this particular configuration. Yeah. And again, you hit right the nail right on the head, which is uh, the basic, like I said before, the basic idea of uh, elimination tag match, each falls a different step. That can work. I mean, Austin and Triple H did the singles version of that, you know, like the three stages of hell or whatever. You know, it's just you got to pick better stipulations. But um, anyway, for this match, I would say the scramble's the best part, the first fall. It doesn't go very long, and you get that feeling that everyone, because they know it's not going long, is really racing to get some shit in, but in a fun way because of that. We even get a dive train where Roddy and Adam Pierce even take to the sky. And one, it's a dive train, unfortunately, where also where poor Sal Renaro, he dives to the floor. It's one of those ones where it feels like neither Whitmer or Ares really catch him. Like he kind of falls like right through their arms if they break his fall. It's not by much, I felt like. Man, poor Sal. You're you're taking the fall in the opening the opening fall, and you just died. But um, the scramble also has the other pet peeve that I referenced earlier. This is now this is a Trevor Dane pet peeve for sure. I'm not borrowing it from Matt, although um, it's the sequence where in an elimination match where everyone tries to break up each other's pins, and there, in this match there's a sequence where there's like a million straight pin breaks in succession. It's an elimination match. Just let people eliminate people that are not on your team. Like, Jared David on commentary, he actually realizes that he tries to cover. I, I appreciate the effort he goes. He says they can't um, help themselves. <laughs> he goes, there's so many egos in this match, but even he's like, they should just let the pins happen. But at least I appreciate he tried to make the effort of like, they all want the glory, but it's really stupid in an elimination match that you just don't let someone make it your job easier. But I mean, the, I mean, the real answer oh, is like it's habit, right? Like, like I mean, mm-hmm. that's like both the the uh, kayfabe answer and also probably the shoot answer because I think in you know if they if even like from a shoot standpoint if they had been thinking about it they'd be like oh wait we can't do this but they just do it because that's a habit of how they book them so they uh, you know they lay out these matches. Yeah, especially because in Ring of Honor, very rarely are elimination match. I mean, match are multi-man matches elimination. It's almost always one fall to a finish. But there's a few exceptions, but usually not. Ultimate Endurance is one of the only exceptions. Then we get the submission portion fall of this match, and boy, like Matt, like you said earlier, how how the matches die a death often with the submission point. Boy, is this a major gear shift down in this match. When you go from breakneck action to immediately on a, on a dime, Ricky Reyes trading holds with BJ Whitmer for a minute. It, it's as if someone just stomped on the brakes if this match was a car. Luckily, the second fall is very short. It's just there basically so Pierce can get disqualified for hitting Homicide with a chain. And I do, I will say, I actually feel like they handled the Homicide Pierce field well in this match where they're yelling at each other before the match even starts. They're like racing to hit each other when the match does start. Um, BJ Whitmer, who is Pierce's partner in this match, he's kind of caught in the middle because the whole storyline is he's kind of formed a friendship with both Pierce and Whitmer over the course of the ROH CZW feud. And you can see him talking, trying to play peacemaker between these two guys. And you know, we during the dive train, Homicide shoves Pierce off the top turnbuckle into the dive. So we get lots of, you know, nice little touches like that. And then when we get the DQ here, it causes Whitmer to understandably freak out that Pierce just cost them the match just to get go after Homicide. And he wonders what the fuck Pierce is doing. And Pierce tell, yells at BJ, tells him, quote, get with the program, unquote. And then the third fall is weird since it starts with 
As a result of Homicide getting hit with the chain, with Ricky Reyes basically having to work one-on-two with Homicide sending the chainsaw on the outside, and like the work is fine, and you could even say, hey, Reyes and Aries have history because they had that feud earlier in the year where Reyes was going after Aries' uh, Ring of Honor school students, but I'm just over Ricky Reyes at this point. He doesn't really do much for me, and also creates this weird vibe as both teams are, I guess, are kind of supposed to be baby faces at this point, but Reyes is the underdog, and I just don't have a lot of sympathy for Ricky Reyes because he was just recently a heel and the way he the style he works and then a few minutes later homicide recovers and he tags him and he doesn't really seem to be hurt at all and then we get what i would describe as a perfectly fine tag match although it also does have austin aries botch a move that he does all the time which is he does the big twisting body press where he he's staying on the apron and he kind of catapults himself over the top rope into the ring into like a twisting body press and here he catches his legs on the top rope as he does it and he's lucky because he put his arm and his shoulder to break the fall and otherwise dude would have landed right on his head so that was kind of scary he also messes up a clothesline and there was a point where i was like is he concussed but then he did a promo after and he sounded totally fine but i I was he was he was messing a few things up there near the end yeah so and then it all ends with steve creel interfering as you know his this is his return to ring of honor after a long time away homicide takes his second gimmick shot of the match with that uh roll of quarter shot which this time directly loses him to losing and again i get the idea that they're using this match more than anything this match is just telling the story of homicides feuds and the bj whitmer caught in the middle saga but it's kind of weird that the babyface tag team champions you know kite this weekend on the last show is in the promo of being like you know we're going to prove that we're the best we're going to prove the doubters and this match is almost like they're an afterthought and they only win because the guy they beat in the end gets like hit with by two different wrestlers with weapons but overall after the scramble i thought fall i thought this match was on the pace to be surprisingly good but i think it settled to kind of a little bit above average only probably my least favorite match of the card so far because of the booking and the ultimate endurance quirks and it was heavy on you know just it's it's a lot of the booking was the focus of this match but that's what i thought of it what do you think matt yeah, I thought this was the low light of the show. Period. You know, bef- you know, not just so far. I, I I don't think anything that came after I thought was 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 worse than this. Not that it was terrible or anything, but I um you know I really didn't like those last two falls. It just I just didn't work for me. I just thought the the mix of characters I think didn't work. Um, I think the thing I liked the most was the fact that at the beginning Homicide and Pierce went like you know. Ha- it hot and heavy to start. I thought it was yeah. the only logical way to start the match. I was happy when it happened because when Homicide came out, I was like, uh, he seems too calm. Like he's just kind of like tamely coming to the ring. He should be furious at Pierce. So I was very happy that like when the f- match finally hit the ground running, that they really went at it. Um, but like otherwise, there was just a lot of stuff I was disappointed with. I mean, there were cool moves in the scramble. You know, Whitmer did a spinning head scissors to Strong, which you definitely don't see that from him often and you know Renaro's corkscrew plancha and stuff and you know referencing the last Long Island show where um with uh Smokes and Nana kind of going at it um and um at one point Whitmer was attacking Reyes and Smokes yelled cut your hair at him which I was like why do you why do you care about his hair being long but I was disappointed that the embassy was in there for such a little amount of time because they are a great act, and they would have brought a lot more personality to the latter part of the match, but I guess it just wasn't the story they were telling. I would have liked to see more of the Embassy. I think the match would have been better had they been in there longer. 
Um, yeah, on the, on commentary, I wonder if this is a consideration they mentioned, and I had forgotten this, that uh, Jimmy Rave is wrestling with staples in his head because the week before was when he got brained by a steel with the cowbell, remember? And, like, legit concussed him, I think, and, and busted him open. So I could even see them maybe – we'll have to see what Jimmy Rave does the next night. But, yeah, like, yeah. are they kind of going to baby him a little bit because – yeah, I don't remember. I know, the, I know the, report, the report at the time was there was wondering, like, is he even going to work this week? But he ends up working both shows. Yeah, I don't remember how much he did on the Fight of the Century, so I'll have to keep an eye on that yeah. to see if that's the uh, if that makes sense as the reason. Um, and like I mentioned before, I, I do think that um, that uh, Aries seemed off in the in the last fall, and I you know I don't know if that was just a coincidence or if there was something up with him. Also, like. Come on, like a disqualification in a tap out match, like that's yeah. some that's some like eighties WWF shit right there, right? Um, you know where everything is a screw job, um, but you know otherwise the work, like you said in the last fall, was fine, a perfectly serviceable tag match. I think Carino's appearance, you know, while not a satisfying ending for an ROH match, um, I think it's a, a effective way to get him back in the mix. So I think all in all. Uh, this was a middling match, but not not bad or anything. And then after the match, uh, Austin Aries gets on the mic, and you can actually hear one fan kind of going to my point, shouting, "You needed Carino's help," which again is it's not the thing you want the baby face to get yelled get yelled the kind of thing you want fans to yell at the baby face. Um, Aries says he's not going to pretend to know what just happened, which I thought was he's going to be like what with all the like the heel interference and shit, but he goes, me and Thrati are still the ring of our tanking champions. And then this is something that's referenced on commentary during the match. Prezak points out that Aries is strong can come to the ring without the tag belt. So he's like, well, what's, well, you know, what's going on there? And then Aries now acknowledges that he, Aries says they were, they're missing the ROH tag team belt because someone in the back had the balls and audacity to steal them. Aries says he has a suspicion that it's the Briscoe brothers and the belts better be back safe in their bags by the time of their match tomorrow. It will not, of course, quick spoiler, it won't be the Briscoes who stole the belts, but that will be revealed on a coming show. Um, Another classic Ring of Honor, someone stole or did something. Gabe Sapolsky loved his Ring of Honor mysteries. You know, who attacked Lacey, who shit in the Carnage Crew bag, you know. If you want to get a gift for Gabe Sapolsky, get him a good like pot boiler like detective mystery paperback because the man loves a mystery. But When was the last good uh, like mystery wrestling angle? I'm not even like where who did this, you know, who's it going to be? Let's have the big reveal. Yeah. Like, obviously they have like mystery partners and stuff. Yeah. And oh, then like the mystery stuff, like who is like the leader of the dark order, you know, Brody Lee. Yeah, I don't even I, know. If I that's guess, yeah, so I mean, that, but even that's now what, three years old, right? Yeah. And even that, I get what you're saying. It's not even that. That's more of just like mystery, man, more of a, like someone did something. And we don't know who who's, it is. Who's, res- who's responsible for this? Who raised the yeah. briefcase? Who was driving the Hummer? Who is the greater power? I feel like that counts. Um, yeah, exactly. Like, like that was a that was yeah. Now that you remind me, that was like a big WWE stable for a while too. Of like, yeah, like someone in the production or someone shoved somebody, but we didn't see who. Like there, there was definitely that was a big trope more in the late nineties, probably up to this point. You know. Yep. Um. Bring back the mystery, folks. But and, I, th- uh, I think I think we could get one good mystery every like two or three years. I think that's a fair amount of for mysteries. And I do think when they're well done, people do like it. And I don't mean the pickup artist guy. I don't want to see any of him. <laughs> no mystery. I, I feel like when they're done well, like they can be big business too. It's just that I think wrestling has a history where. 
probably like the batting average on satisfying reveals to mysteries is like one in ten or something. Because think about like people genuinely were excited with the who is like the higher or greater higher power storyline. They were genuinely excited about like the Black Scorpion. It's just they're looked down on now because they fumbled the reveals. Like they picked the most boring. Oh, it's the guy that was already feuding with him. Did but, you like, uh, did you have did, did you have like a person that you were hoping it would be when it was the the greater power? Um because I did. I was like I wanted it to be Ted DiBiase because I think it would have made so much sense with, you know, his history with Steve Austin and his supposed, you know, endless bank account. It would have been really good. And, uh, yeah, I don't remember who I want, but I, you know, it's probably one of those storylines where I probably wanted like every single person from WCW or ECW because there was so many, so much jumping back there that you were just like, well, anyone could show up, you know? Yep. Hulk Hogan's the greater power, like, like but obviously it couldn't be. But, um, it's now Brian Danielson's turn for a backstage promo, and he says it seems like Samoa Joe thinks he runs things around here. Brian says he's not going to meet Samoa Joe backstage tonight like Joe wants. He's going to let him sit and stew because Brian calls the shots, and he doesn't answer to anyone. He's going to do his talking in the ring against Joe tomorrow where they'll see if his knee is as healthy as he says it is. Then Brian moves on to Nigel McGuinness talking about unifying the ROH titles. Brian says if Nigel's up for it, I'm up for it too, and we'll do it one more time. We'll wrestle each other. So, And actually, they'll wrestle each other more than one more time, and they may be wrestling each other this year. Matt, one thing I want to point out about this that I thought was funny, which is how often in wrestling does this happen where, like, you know, we talk about occasionally the Chekhov's gun thing, which is if you bring up something in fiction, you should really pay it off. The idea that Samoa Joe, the opening promo is like, I want to face to face with you tonight, Brian Danielson. And then Brian Danielson's promo is basically saying, I'm not going to meet you tonight, Joe. And then at the end of the night, Joe Biss is like, I'm disappointed that Brian didn't want to face with me. <laughs> like nothing comes to it. It's just basically a guy. It's, it's a very sedate kind of like, I want this. You can't have it. Oh shit. Yeah. And, and, and it's on. not, and like the people live didn't even know about those promos. So it doesn't like add heat to the match either. Yeah. So <laughs> I think. Like, it's the build-up angle tonight is Brian uh, – Samoa Joe wanted to talk to Brian Danielson, and Danielson said no. That's the go-home angle. And Joe was like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, we go back to the ring where uh, Steve Carino walks to the ring. He's interrupting what looks like what's going to be an, a Ring of Honor students' dark match coming back from intermission. We just see one of the students in the ring, which is Alex Sugarfoot Payne. And Alex Payne takes exception to that, and to his credit, he stands up for himself. He interrupts Carino before Carino can cut a promo. And when Carino won't engage, he just ignores Payne. Payne actually lands a few punches on Carino, which surprised me, before Steve just takes him out with a back suplex and a Northern Lights bomb. He then screams, don't you know who I am? And which causes a few fans to actually chant, who the fuck are you at Carino? And Carino snaps back, oh, wow, you guys came alive for once. And Carino says he's been sitting in his car for two hours outside the building, and this is the lamest ROH crowd he's ever seen. Yeah, how would he know uh, then? <laughs> <laughs> I guess normally he's saying that the fans at Sport Plus get loud enough that he could hear them from out. I mean, from inside his car? <laughs> He might, he, might have had, he might have had the car on, air conditioner running, because it was the summertime. For all we know, he would he would not know that this crowd was <laughs> – and also, he was at the War of the Wire, and I think we can both confirm that crowd was worse than this one. <laughs> 
Kareno then says, the last time he was in this crap hole, they were a lot louder. And he says, are you too spoiled now? He calls them the biggest idiot nerd virgin losers he's ever seen. A thousand people in here, which <laughs> Steve really rounding up there. And he says, maybe six sexual encounters between them all. And my and first, all and belong- my, and, and my first uh, dad story, my dad laughed so hard at that line and I gave him such a death <laughs> stare. I was like, you motherfucker. Man. That's dead. That's harsh, Matt's dead. But um, he goes, they all belong to that. All the six sexual encounters belong to that girl right there. And he points to a poor girl in the audience. Creel says, he didn't want to come back to ROH, but Steve Creel called him up and told him that there was some piece of garbage calling him out. Then Creel turns his attention to a heckling Green Lantern fan, and he calls Green Lantern fan a four-eyed, watch-wearing piece of garbage, which gets a big pop. Creel then says that there's one guy more hated in this building than him. It's Green Lantern fan, which gets an even bigger pop and an immediate loud fuck you lantern chant. Creo says lantern is over now. Why doesn't he bring out his own t-shirt, idiot? Um, Creo says Hamas, I also thought, by the way, could Green Lantern fan even put out his own shirt? Because like, it would have to have some kind of Green Lantern branding on it, which he does not own the rights to, but I mean, if, anyway. it, just, if it just said like GLF on it or something, I think I guess, yeah. it probably would In work. Green. Yeah. And you could make, you know, I don't think they copyrighted the color or the shade of green or anything. So I think you could probably get away with something or other, you know, maybe if, um, if, 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 uh, DC was, it is DC, right? That does Green Lantern, um, was real petty. They might go after it, but I don't think so. So yeah, so, anyway, um, point is Green Lantern fan, if you haven't already, there's still time to do it. Yeah, if anyone tried to sue me, could you say the GLF stands for good luck, friend? But um, <laughs> Carino calls homicide, homicide, you know, the low-hanging fruit there, and says, we're all gay for him. Carino says homicide's nowhere to be found, at which point homicide immediately attacks Carino from the back, runs from the back, attacks him. But Adam Pierce is, is almost immediately comes out to save Carino. He and Carino proceed to beat down homicide two on one. Fans uh, are basically immediately chanting for BJ Whitmer, so they know where this angle is going. And he quickly runs in, and BJ grabs the mic. He asks Pierce, "What's he doing to homicide? Homicide like helped us at Cage of Death. He helped us with that whole feud." And um. Pierce grabs the mic and says, you know, I've never worked for any of the fans. The only, I've only ever worked for one man, James E. Cornette. If Cornette gives me the order to destroy Homicide, that's exactly what I'm going to do. During this time period, Homicide's recovered, and he sneaks up behind Pierce and lays him out. And then we get a standoff between Homicide and Carino as Whitmer just kind of looks on, caught in the middle. They start to brawl Homicide and Carino, and... um Homicide then, during the brawl, brings a chair into the ring. He throws it at Carino. Carino dodges it, goes to the floor. The crowd chants pussy at Carino. Carino and Pierce leave. As Homicide grabs the mic and he says he guesses Carino is back in Ring of Honor. So thus begins another chapter, you know, in their saga. He calls Carino a fat pig. Uh, Homicide tells, then tells Carino, this is my favorite point of the whole segment, Matt. Homicide tells Carino to tell Jim Cornette to suck his and then he just pauses and he drops the mic instead of saying dick. And then Carino yells from the from like the entranceway, You're not man enough to say it. And I just love the idea that like like this is a feud between Carino and Homicide where in storyline at one point Homicide stabbed Carino in the eye with a fork. They've wrestled in barbed wire, all this stuff. He, def- and, like, he, he literally deafened him. <laughs> like 
Yeah, and the the idea is that Creel's like, you're not man enough to say the word dick. <laughs> like, like I just thought that he that was Creel's response. You're not man enough to say it. Uh, that was his comeback. But no matter how pe- no matter how heavy things get, you'll never get past the petty schoolyard stuff. That's how it. That's how I guess it probably works in real life too. Yeah, I thought this was actually a good angle, but I thought it kind of petered out near the end. But like all the storyline beats made a lot of sense to me. It's. We'll see how the the return the the you know the heating up again of this feud that we liked in the past plays out. I feel like there's something that's still missing a little bit from it that maybe we'll define what that is on future shows. But yeah, I, I thought overall it was well done. And one thing I did like was it was one of those feuds where they were probably not well maybe Gabe planned some stuff really far out in advance, but it was one of those feuds where it feels like they're playing off the past. You know where it was almost like. Maybe we didn't plan every beat of this out that far in advance, but we got all this past there, and everything makes sense with the past. Like when Adam Pierce is like, you know, telling Whitmer, like, I'm attacking homicide because my loyalty is to Jim Cornette, you know, that's been well established. You know, we had the whole point of Adam Pierce coming into Ring of Honor and kind of feuding with, with Cornette a little bit, and then Cornette, you know, earn, and them earning each other's respect, and then Cornette making Adam Pierce like the designated, like, interim commissioner when he was out with injury so all that like there's real history there it's not like all the motivations have been in place for a while that makes sense same with like the bj whitmer being caught in the middle like he legit did kind of form bonds with pierce and homicide you know even back to like they were continuing to push that with like the war of the wire two match where homicides in whitmer's corner when he's facing necro butcher like every all the motivations really work out here but um T.W. Torch would write about this. Regarding Steve Carino's return to Ring of Honor, Games of Policy says, although he doesn't get along with Steve Carino, he finds him to be talent and believes there is great heat for the continuation of the Homicide Carino feud. Quote, well, Steve and I have always butted heads, but you can't deny his talent. He says, the heat is stronger than ever between Homicide and Carino after their last match in December where Homicide suffered that shoulder injury. So, as always, they're always doing that thing in the press where, you know, Gabe always acknowledges, hey, me and Carino, we don't like each other, but we do what's best for business. Unfortunately, they couldn't do that with a low key. But that brings us to the ROH pure title match. Nigel McGuinness successfully defends the title when he defeats Delirious via ref stoppage in uh, 17 minutes, 26 seconds, when he makes him pass out in the calamutilation. So the second match on the show where someone wins by using the submission, a submission move of their opponent that they're about to face on a future show. Um, Matt, before I get your opinions, I just want to point out something, which is Todd Sinclair, he always does the rules explanation for the pure matches before they start. I will just say this crowd, they're all, the crowd usually gets on Todd's case. They were fucking brutal to the point that I felt bad for them. Like the hecklers here, they're just yelling, like they're so hateful. They're yelling like straight, like we don't care. We know the rules. Shut the fuck up. Like they're just being yeah, this was really. Def- this was definitely a Long Island moment for sure. <laughs> but hopefully meant one of your uh, dad anecdotes is not that your dad was joining in with them. Um, yeah. what did you think well, about my dad thing? definitely would not be one of the people yelling, we know the rules. <laughs> your dad's like, I brushed up on this on the internet. My son told me. Yeah. That um, would be a great thing to yell. My son already told me about this. <laughs> He's just pointing to you as you like are covering your face. Yeah. A spotlight shines on you. Like you're like, why is the spotlight guy focusing on us? <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, I uh I like this match a lot more than I remembered. I think they did a lot of clever stuff. First of all, 
the gimmick at the beginning is that Delirious is too dumb to understand the rules, which I enjoyed <laughs> very much. He kept breaking, he kept like using rope breaks off of like a front face lock and gets really confused. He does another one off like a hammer lock. And then, like, he tries to maneuver out of an arm bar. Like, he's like, I'm not going to do it. And then he just forgets again and uses his third rope break after, like, this, the, uh, a minute after the second one. So I really enjoyed the first few minutes. And so, like, the, then the next uh, ele- element is Nigel sort of, like, showing how it's done, getting out of a bunch of holds without using rope breaks. But then, um, then eventually... He does a couple rope breaks by mistake too. So he's like, his, the whole thing is like, oh, I'm too smart for this. But then Delirious gets him to waste two rope breaks, just like breaking, you know, like getting out of a, off of like a wrist lock. And like the ref's still counting it when he's like, no, 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 that was a mistake. So it's like Delirious was dumb. And then Nigel was like, I'm clever. But then it turns out that Nigel is also dumb. So I really enjoyed that. Um, then Nigel starts hitting lariats. And Delirious hits a leaping lariat of his own, um, and they get more into the hard-hitting stuff. Um, There was a spot, um, you know, like, they they actually, considering that it was a kind of longish match, the pace never gets that slow. You know, uh, Delirious hits a shadows over hell pretty early, and Nigel kicks out, and then Delirious rolls right into the Cobra stretch, so Nigel uh, uses his final rope break off of that. Um, and then Nigel does that thing where he escapes to the aisle and dares Delirious to come out and, you know, kind of trick him into getting counted out. Um, and so Delirious follows him. Nigel rams him into the guardrail and then he throws him into the crowd. And then he, like, crouches behind the guardrail like he's hiding. And so Delirious sort of waddles to the ring and Nigel comes out of nowhere with a clothesline and then runs into the ring to get Delirious counted out. And then Delirious gets back in at 19, and I think he gets a pretty big pop. Like, it's not like Roderick Strong at Death Before Dishonor in Philadelphia, but by Long Island standards, it was a big pop for him getting back in the ring. And then, you know, I thought that the finish was coming, but they kind of get more into, like, heavier-duty stuff. Um, Nigel hits a running corner uppercut. Delirious comes back with a forearm. Delirious catches uh, Nigel off the rebound with a kick and goes for Shadows Over Hell again. But Nigel uppercuts him on the way down, gets a two count, gets a t- hits the Tower of London for a really good kickout pop by uh, from Long Island. Um, Delirious blocks a second Tower of London, does an, a wacky roll into the, another Cobra stretch, um, and the crowd really wants Nigel to tap, and Nigel teases it, but he's able to maneuver out. Um, Delirious goes up to the top rope again, but Nigel trips him, hits another Tower of London, and the crowd really pops for that kickout. Um, then he goes for the lariat with Delirious crotched over the top rope. The So that lariat doesn't hit as nicely as it often does. So that's kind of like a, a little bit of a, a mark against the match, but gets a two count. Uh, Delirious gets a, sl- a flash small package, gets another two count, um, versus a back suplex into a head scissors, but knocks Nigel into the rebound lariat. And Delirious rolls toward the ropes, but Nigel covers to another two count. And then Nigel locks in the catamutilation, and Delirious makes the rope, but it's moot. And the crowd chants, please don't tap, but he passes out and Nigel wins. This match had a lot of great moments. Like, I didn't remember this match at all. So to me, this feels like a really good performance by Nigel. Delirious was good, and to me, this feels like almost like hidden gem status. Because, not you know, this is not a great crowd. And they got them really into this match. And I really enjoyed the beginning 
and I really enjoyed the end, and I never thought it really slowed down. So, you know, I would say this was a very, very good match, and I did not remember it at all. So, I actually, it's it's funny you, you because my review for this match is, um, I, first off, I agree, this is my favorite. I, I don't like this match quite as much as you, but I definitely think this is the best match of the night thus far. And you know what? Maybe by the time we get to the end of the show, this might still be my favorite match of the night. We'll see. But um, if you're like me, when you watch wrestling, you kind of go in with a kind of a range of expectations. You look at a match, and just based on your knowledge of the wrestlers and the company and all sorts of stuff, you kind of have a guess, in your, your best guess in your head of how good it'll likely be. And then maybe you have a little guess of like, well, if the worst case scenario, if things go wrong, it'll be this bad. And on the best case scenario, if things go over my expectations, it could be maybe reach this height. To me, I felt like going into this match, I had completely forgotten it. I felt like this match hit the dead center of my expectations for how good a 2006 Nigel McGuinness versus Delirious match, third from the top on the first half of a double shot would be, is like not a particle better or worse than my gut instinct. It's like a very strong, like a, it's like very strong three and a half which is maybe like one notch below it sounds like what you thought of it. But they did not go out there and try and absolutely steal the show and go for broke, but they did not slack off or mail in anything. Like they did a really good effort here and it, which feels like the exact level you would have for this match on this spot, on this car, on this show. I like you really like the delirious comedy up top. I like, I thought that was a real fun twist on both his character and the, uh, the pure rules that he doesn't, He's just wasting the pure rules rope breaks because he doesn't know the rules. The the other great touch of that is every time there's like a rope break in a pure rules match, uh, Bobby Cruz gets on the, the house mic and announces it. And every time he did that in this match, Delirious looks up in the sky like it's the voice of God. Like he gets really confused. Like, where's that voice coming from? Like, he doesn't even know that. I thought that was really kind of adorable and cute. You know, it's an example of, you know, Delirious comedy. He does the same things. He can get old. This was like a really fresh. And this was also a point in Delirious's Ring of Armour where I feel like he was really over at this point. Um, You mentioned how being surprised about like how big the reaction was to the to uh, the countout tease, I felt like in general, like some of the near falls either survives or is on the, the the covering end of. They were really into the idea of Delirious winning this match, even though you would think a fan should be like, "There's no way, you know, going into the coming shows that Nigel's going to lose here." But they were really into the idea of we want Delirious to win this match, and um, I didn't like the Nigel breaking the rope breaks quite as much. It's really cute, the idea that Nigel, after Delirious wastes them, that the smart Nigel is too. But I felt like it kind of doesn't make sense in the, because Nigel is like the, he's wrestled more pure rules matches than anybody. So the idea that all of a sudden he's going to forget, like, oh, you can't use your hand to like steady yourself when you're caught in a hold. But I realize it's kind of a cute tit for tat thing. But, um, and this is also, you know, one of those matches we've been charting lately that the evolution of Nigel from pure rules, Nigel to more of like Noah, Nigel, whatever you want to call it. He's definitely way more in Noah, Nigel, where even though this is a pure rules match, there's very little wrestling on the mat. There's almost no cutesy comedy or even cheating from Nigel other than like just trying to get a cheap count out win. And it's, it, this is where you're starting to see Nigel in matches like this, where he's becoming like, I've got a few moves that could kind of theoretically end a match and I'm not afraid to use them all, even in like a non super top level match. Like in this match, you know, Delirious survives two Tower of Londons and a rebound lariat. So, you know, 
Nigel's kind of got, you know, he's, Nigel's starting to become like the big near fall guy where he's got these big moves. I'm going to use them all multiple times. We're going to try and just so you don't know exactly when I'm going to win. And finally, I'll say this too. You know, if you're a connoisseur of when a wrestler does someone else's finishing move, I thought Nigel did a really good cattle mutilation here. I feel like I've seen occasionally someone else trying to do it, and it never looks that – it usually doesn't look that good either because the guy isn't adept at doing the bridge or they can't really clasp their hands together. I thought like Nigel did an excellent bridge, and he really got a really good deep clasp of, of his hands. And I felt like that's a really good-looking cattle mutilation from a guy that's probably never done it before. And for some reason, I was just extra impressed by that. Um, Yeah, this is the best match of the show – thus far and very in- enjoyable i would say but in, in a way i kind of expected that i, I kind of thought because i thought these guys were good they're getting a lot of time i just and, i just um, i just didn't remember such an enjoyable match between them on a show that i attended like i was like i feel like this would have been a really fun crowd to be a part of and i was part of this crowd yeah. and i don't remember it at all so that's kind of why it surprised <laughs> me um so after the match, Prezak hypes again how there have been no title changes in 2006, and he asks who's the best champion in ROH, and that's clearly a point Gabe's been telling Prezak to hit, like because it seems like a bunch of shows now we've been getting him saying that basically that same line, like who's going to lose their title first, you know who's the best champion in Ring of Honor, and it's because they're pressing that story. I guess then we should say that if this is a kind of a storyline, the best champion in Ring of Honor ends up being Brian Danielson because he's the last one to lose their title of the champions right now. So it, Matt, finally the storyline confirms something. Brian Danielson's a good wrestler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> next we join Lacey backstage again and gave from behind the camera, asks her, is she ready for the promo now? She says she is. We get into it. Lacey says, everyone's been asking her why Jimmy Jacobs is on this weekend shows. Lacey says it's because last week, Jimmy decided to pry into all these internet rumors about her. She says Jimmy has been sent home by her this weekend as punishment as Jimmy needs to focus on one thing, winning matches for Lacey's Angels. Lacey says Jimmy's live musical performance at the last show did not impress her. What does impress her is winning matches. And again, going back to Matt, you pointing out the on the other little thing, I'll gave loving the detail thing. I mean, if nothing else, they're putting a promo on this card just to let you know why Jimmy Jacobs is not booked for this weekend. So I do like that level of detail and I appreciate it because I was like, I miss Jimmy Jacobs. He's been having yeah. some momentum lately. Yeah. And that brings us to semi main event. The Briscoes of J. Mark Briscoe defeat Davey Richards and Kenta in 19 minutes, 18 seconds, when Mark Briscoe pinned R- Davey Richards after they the Briscoes hit a spike J-driller on him. Um, I believe in the Observer, when I was looking for stuff for, for research, Dave wrote that, based on live notes, the top match was the Briscoes over Kenta and Richards when Richards was pinned after a J-driller in a super stuff match. Now, I assume he meant to say super stiff, but it's funny because... I wouldn't necessarily call this a super level match, but I would call this a stuff match. And yeah, um, yeah it was a super stuff match. It definitely was. <laughs> um, th- this match was what I expected, but disappoint me a little. I-, I think all four of these men are very talented. And hell, Matt, you and I, just a few episodes ago after the untimely passing of Jay Briscoe, we went in great depth on the greatness of the Briscoes as an all-time great tag team. Well, so all four of these guys, I'll establish, I think they're capable of really good stuff. But I feel like if all of them have a flaw, it's as all of them are capable of having matches where it just feels like a bunch of stuff. And sometimes that can be fun. I felt like this was 
it was it was a stuff match. It was a bunch of stuff. It was no story, no face or heel dynamics, not even really like a basic tag match story. Like I guess there's one point where, that you can qualify as a hot tag where Davy tags up the Kenta. But even that, I don't feel like was that long in isolation of Davy Richards. It's just all four men cycling in and out frequently, pretty often. Lots of back and forth changes in control. Lots of tags in and out, basically wall to wall mid tempo action. Until the five final five minutes, where we get our usual tags are now ignored, hot stretch, everyone in the in that last gear, and it's good. I'd say it's maybe a three and a half stars, but maybe I enjoy it a little less than the three and a half stars I gave Nigel and Delirious. If I, um, you know, I don't know if I, I I could see why people would say this is the match of the night. I, you could I could even make an argument to myself. I'm don't know if i would though i don't know if, if i'm just saying for pure fun if this is the most fun i had it's the kind of match that i feel guilty for not liking more because the execution's very good everyone's clearly working hard it's a match that i feel like is kind of less than the sum of its parts because it's just it's just action and it doesn't quite go to that crazy level that a just action match needs for me to really go well that makes up for just being stuff one thing I did notice during this match is how stiff Kenta makes other people. Like, I was watching this match, and, you know, Kenta's getting into these huge slap fights with, I think, Jay Briscoe and stuff. And I was watching this match going, wow, I feel like the Briscoes are being a little stiffer than I'm used to. And then I realized, oh, it's because Kenta was stiff to them first. And it made me start to realize something that I guess is obvious, Matt, but I didn't really think about until I watched this match, which is if you're a stiff wrestler, you are probably getting, like, every other wrestler you face's stiffest performance ever. Because a lot of wrestlers, I imagine, if you're in the ring with someone that's stiffer than you're used to, you're going to respond by going, well, if that's how you're going to be to me, I'm going to be to you. And I feel like if you watch this match, you can literally see the Bristol quickly realize, well, shit, you know, if you're going to hit us like this, we're going to hit you a little harder too. And I guess to Kenta's credit, he takes it. I don't, I, I don't think he complains about it. I mean, I don't know, but um, yeah, I, uh, it's weird. I wish I had more to say about this match. I will say there was one funny moment where um, Davy Richards tries to elevate a Briscoe, I, I think Jay, to the top rope. And in a slightly scary moment, he can't. He kind of lift him all the way up onto the top turnbuckle. And so instead he kind of drops him onto the ropes for a second and where he could have fallen. Jay, Jay kind of helps him out there and like gets, yeah. it, gets it working right. And, and you can hear one isolated fan yell, you almost fucked up. Which I, <laughs> you can that that fan you know he wanted to chant you fucked up and then he says well they kind of saved it and so he still had to say it he he had to find a way to say it Matt and I, I in a way the fact that in some ways that gave me the most pleasure of anything in this match maybe is the best review of how I felt about this match yeah I get everything you're saying I I don't really necessarily think I can dispute any of it. I, um, you know, the match certainly doesn't start out particularly dynamic, you know, between Richards and Mark, they trade Matt stuff. There's one point where, um, where Jay is going what for look what looks like a jumping Rana, but Kenta drops down like he doesn't really go with it. So the announcers just call it a leg lariat. It just kind of hits him awkwardly. And a fan yells, are you trying to kill him? Um, so, you know, that was kind of a, a sloppy spot that took things down. There was also, so you know how Kenta does the thing where he, he leaps over the top rope from the apron and teases like stomping down on somebody, but instead he just kind of like does a, a, a sweeping kick behind him to the mm-hmm. guy's head. So the angle that they shot that with here really made it look like a brutal kick to Mark's head there. Like you don't usually see it from that angle and it looked really painful. So, um, 
you know, that that was rough. But I do think that I did appreciate how hard hitting it was. And you're right, there wasn't much of a story, but I really did enjoy that final sequence. I thought there were a lot of cool moves. I'm not someone who cares about the legal man stuff, so it doesn't really that didn't really take things down for me. Um, you know, I, I just I love like so basically the the final sequence. Um, there's there's one really good sequence where Richards hits a leaping forearm on Mark and then immediately dives onto Jay on the floor while Kenta hits a tiger suplex on Mark for a two count. I I really love that. Then they go into this final sequence where. Uh, Kenta springboards off the top, but Mark catches him with a head and arm suplex, and then Richards hits the stand, a handspring back kick on Mark. Then Jay boots Richards. Then Kenta hits the big knee on Jay, and they do one of those all four guys are down spots where, you know, it's sort of like an applause break. I, 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 you know, those can be played out, but we haven't seen too much of them, and I, I like them when they're done well. We actually don't get those too much anymore. Those big, like, everyone's down, applause break spots in a yeah. tag match. I, I, I enjoy those from time to time, you know? Um, and then, so Mark hits a sudden spin kick on Kenta, and then Mark has Kenta up on the top rope, but Richard gets Mark on his shoulders, and Kenta hits a doomsday Busaiku knee, and then Jay breaks that up that pin, hits a military press into a Death Valley driver on Kenta. Richard hits a DDT on Mark, which are a really, you know, good-looking DDT. Mark moves out of the way of a shooting star press. And Briscoe goes for a springboard doomsday device, um, but Kenta grabs Mark's legs, and Davey does a victory roll on Jay and gets a two count. And then Mark knocks Kenta away, and the Briscoes hit the spike Jay driller on Davey to finally get the three count. You know, those last like couple minutes were just so action packed and so exciting that took the match up for me a bit. I um, I would say this match and probably the previous match, I'd probably put more at like the four and three quarter star range. Um, like you just, mean three and three quarter? Yeah, not yeah, four yeah. And oh, yeah, yes, 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 yes. Sorry. <laughs> I'd be like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. They are some of the best matches I've ever seen in my life. No, yeah. Three and three quarter stars for both of those two matches. Very, very good. This match was definitely more memorable live. Um, you know, it had really had the crowd on their feet. Really exciting. You know, had a big, you know, led to a big chant and applause after the match. Um, you know, like I said, certainly not much of a story. Some sloppiness. So it wasn't a truly great match, but. It was a lot of fun, and um, you know maybe on the low end of what you might expect from these guys, but not like wow, how disappointing. You know, it was yeah. just like maybe they didn't reach the heights, but it was still really good. And this was my um, second dad story, so this one is is more fun. I, I might have even mentioned it before. This was um, so right at the beginning of the next match, my 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 dad went to the bathroom, and this is one of those venues, I guess, where the wrestlers and the fans share a bathroom. So uh, my dad actually saw Kenta in the bathroom, sort of like almost like washing himself down, rinsing off a little bit in the sink in the bathroom. I guess they probably didn't have showers maybe, um, I'm assuming, or or it was just taken, so he just wanted to rinse off. And, and my, so it's kind of awkward, but my dad was like, oh, uh, hi, uh, good match. And, and Kenta's like, oh, thank you, thank you. So my my dad had a completely innocent bathroom encounter with our friend Kenta Kobayashi. You, you could not make that sound more suspicious. Well, that's why I said it like that. I think it's a funny way to say it. But it's also just true. Um, and um, and uh, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, no, I, I, don't know, I don't know if my dad really appreciated the uh, honor that he received at this Ring of Honor event, but I, uh, 
I still remember it. And and sometimes, you know, when I'm mentioning a Japanese wrestling show, my dad will be like, "Oh, is that guy that I that I saw going to be there?" And uh, and you know, sometimes I can say yes. Yes, he will. Unfortunately for Forbidden Door, it seems like no, Dad. No, he will not. But um, yeah, that's my dad and Kenta. BFFs forever. <laughs> my dad and Kenta. But no, that, that is awesome. Like, again, I always say, say when I hear stories like that, like that's the magic of indie wrestling, right? That like the barrier between fans and performers, I think, is probably lower in indie wrestling than most forms of entertainment where depending on the venue, you could – share a bathroom with with the guy you just saw work a match um, yeah, I i'm think sure there, to the yeah, there was a show where my dad said he'd like he peed next to captain lou albano and it's just like these bathrooms they are magical places not these indie shows <laughs> so one of these indies should like like the ecw Rio should just uh, i don't know the ecw Rio probably didn't have indoor plumbing but like people i wonder if you could sell like the urinal like every the, the hall of fame level wrestlers that use this urinal like just this incredible list. Yeah, there there are a couple times that where like uh, as I was like like well there was one time like maybe it was even at this show but definitely at one at, sh- at a show at this venue like I was going out of the bathroom and Roderick Strong was going in and I held the door for him and then a couple months later I was coming out of a Dwayne Reed in Manhattan and Strong was behind me and I held the door for him again and both times he was like thanks bro like just like just like sounding <laughs> like such a stoner I'm not saying that he was but just that that was his affectation because it. <laughs> you know the other thing you mentioned i thought was interesting too was you talk about all oh, this you know played really well live i was just thinking i imagine the two kinds of wrestlers that like play better live than on tape even would be guys like kenta because i think stiffness like it translates to video but never translates the same way, way as when you're in the building and really hear like the crack of you someone hitting flesh or I yeah. guess slapping their thighs. The, close, but, the um, closest you can get for the acoustics translating is maybe Joe and Kobashi, but like even that, as amazing as that sounded on on video, like you could only imagine how insane all that stuff sounded live. You know? Yeah, it's like the same with like for people that have never seen a live hockey game. Like hockey comes off is twenty times more violent if you're watching it live when you realize, oh. This is like 200-pound people flying into each other. Like, yeah. too, it, it's too, just too, completely... too violent for me, honestly. Like, when I go to a hockey yeah. game, I'm like, this is too much. <laughs> and I imagine the other wrestlers that would do really better live are the wrestlers that kind of do, like, a lot of verbal comedy. Because how many times have we watched something and we've seen fans, like, laughing, and it's something we can't hear? Like, some little yeah. aside. So I imagine on the indies, like, probably any wrestler that does, like, a lot of just, like, crowd interaction – that stuff you probably love it way more if you actually saw it live because there's so much of it we just don't get. But um, when I thought the booking of this match too, we should I guess briefly mention the booking. It's really good, straightforward booking where this is technically Kenta's first loss in Ring of Honor, but you know he doesn't take the fall. Davy Richards and he Davy Richards can afford to do that. He's just coming up, and actually you know it gives the Briscoes a big feeling win before their t- tag title rematch, and it gives you know. Kenta and Richards were scheduled the next night anyway, and with the idea of, oh, Davy Richards is now Kenta's American protege, they keep saying, he gives Kenta maybe a little reason to, he's got to teach his, his protege to be a little better by beating the crap out of him. So, works well. Um, that brings us to the main event. Samoa Joe defeats AJ Styles via pinfall in 12 minutes, one second, after he hit a super sleeper suplex. Not a super, well, it was a super su- suplex. It looked pretty good. So, yeah, this is, um, AJ Styles' final match in Ring of Honor for seven and a half years, Matt. 
What'd you think about it? Um, first of all, is this the shortest ROH main event that we've covered in like years? Because <laughs> it feels like it is. Uh, the the only other match that I can think of that was like short bell to bell was Homicide versus Necro Butcher. But I think that might have actually been longer than this. And I think even if it wasn't, it was part of a much longer like segment, you know? Mm-hmm. So I feel like I was trying to think back. I cannot remember an ROH main event that was this short. Like I, I might, you might even have to go back to like the early days of Samoa Joe's title reign, like in 03 when he was having short matches regularly to find one this short. I, I, I'm, I, I, that, I, that's gotta be wrong, but I can't think of one off the top of my head that was anywhere close to this length. Can you? No. And, and I think a good point is what you mentioned too, which is not only is this like a short match, there's no segment. There's no post-match angle. There's no. There's no like farewell to AJ. Like it's just a wrestling match that doesn't go that long by ROH standards, and then you're done. Yeah, uh, like but, there's you know, no extra like sprinkles on top of this. But you know what? I appreciated it. I think it's good to do that sometimes, and and they also I think use the time well. This was a total sprint. Like Joe, in some ways, was working a lot harder. Not I'd say harder, but like he he was. I feel like this was more of like you getting the full Joe picture than most of his appearances lately. Like in matches that didn't involve Kenta or you know CZW. I feel like this was like the most fast paced Joe wrestling match that we've gotten in ROH in a long time. Now on the other hand, you know when you watch the matches that Joe and Styles had in a in uh, TNA back then, obviously they were not going for it the way that they did there here they were not having their best match but considering they weren't having their best match i think they did a pretty darn good job like you know it was a sprint which you don't get in roh main events very often you know you you, they were doing big moves early big moves the whole time they um you know spot 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 um uh lots of springboards lots of you know Big, uh, big lariats and signature moves and stride. You know, Joe with a bunch of strikes. AJ, you know, with his sudden kicks. But a lot more Joe dominance than AJ. There's a lot more Joe offense here, especially down the stretch, than it was AJ offense. And unlike some of the previous two matches, it weren't like super big near falls that the crowd went crazy for. It was just a lot of moves. Uh, there was a spot where. Joe taunted the Green Lantern fan again, but at least he didn't like scream at him like like he was going to kill him like it did in that Kenta three way match at In Your Face. Um, he kicks the guardrail real hard, which would have scared the shit out of me, like right yeah, in front of Green Lantern fan. But that's more standard Joe stuff, you know, for better <laughs> or for worse. Um, the announcers do keep saying that AJ is leaving ROH quote for the time being, which is technically true. And they keep talking about how AJ's Ring of Honor contract is up, which it is very funny how much they kept talking about Ring of Honor contracts in this era when we know they did not have any contracts, I don't think, until the uh, they started on pay-per-view the next year, right? Um, no, I did appreciate that they were fairly honest where they were just like – rather than cut with some weird reason to say face, they were just like, AJ's very in demand. Like, yeah, like and they, they also were basically say- like – and they also say, let's be honest, Ring of Honor isn't the New York Yankees of professional wrestling, financially <laughs> speaking, which I think you can agree, this sort of self-deprecation hits us right where we live, and we really appreciate it. <laughs> so I uh, I enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, I mean, they didn't try to have their best match. 
But I think they had a darn good one. And I think this was a refreshing change of pace for an ROH main event. So I really enjoyed it. Um, I did not like this quite as much as you, but I did enjoy it. Uh, in the Wrestling Observer, Dave Meltzer, based on live reports, he calls this match, it was described to him as, quote, a good match described as w- about what you'd expect to see from them as a ho- at a house show match. I think that's pretty fair. Uh, um. What's interesting to me is how do they get to that level of quality? Because kind of going to what you said, there's lots of ways you can deliver a full 100, deliver hold back and not deliver a full 100% of the match. And I felt like here, it, like sometimes you see a match where they don't give you like certain top level stuff. Where here I felt like they gave you bursts like of top level stuff. Like Joe taking that bump where, um, AJ gets him in body scissors and he pulls Joe over the top rope and Joe takes a bump over the top rope to the floor. I feel like, you know, that's not a bump you take if you're just half-assing it, right? Like that's a big bump for, for a guy like Joe to take. I don't, I don't see him take that in every match or, you know, AJ does a big dive over the top or even the crazy super sleeper suplex at the end. Like they give you bursts of the big stuff. But I do feel like maybe they linger a little more between the big spots occasional, occasionally for a couple of seconds. Like they try and maybe get a little more mileage of each of those spots and they do end early. Like when the match ends with the sleeper suplex, you know, Joe hasn't gone for the muscle buster or, and we haven't had a lot of near falls. AJ did hit the styles clash, but was too fatigued to really take advantage of it. But they, you know, they go to the finish pretty quick and you get, you hear this reaction of the crowd where it's like, uh, that kind of half second after the the pin where like the, they clearly did not expect that to be the end of the match. And then there's kind of like, uh, and then they pop. It's not a great pop, but it's a good pop. But you can almost hear like the crowd think like, wow, it's over. Eh, I, I guess that was good enough. And uh, that's, <laughs> I feel like that was kind of like the vibe of this, you know, it was still crisp, hard hitting wrestling with some big spots. Um, you know, even like Joe going up for AJ's ham- AJ's hammerlock kind of backdrop driver back suplex move. Like again, those are bumps if you really were completely mailing it and you did not have to do. But yeah, I don't think anyone could watch this match and be like, these guys were mailing it in. I mean, that would be crazy. No. I thought it was like their B show. You know, it's the it's the second tier level. It's not everything they can do. It's not what they would do if they were booked on a TNA pay per view. Would you I would agree call with me? Again. Would you agree with me that Joe did like was going hotter and heavier than he had typically been doing in his ROH singles matches lately? I think a bit. I, I still don't know if he was one hundred percent all out, Joe. But no, yeah. no, 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 not one hundred percent, but a lot closer than what we've seen in most of his performances lately. But this is another match where I know you've been running a lot of these matches like three and three quarter. I would put this again as like a three and a half star match. I would like I would say if you watch this show and you said any of the final three matches was your favorite match of the show, like I could make an argument for. It. I'd be like, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, I, and I'd say three and a half. I would say is is right in my range for this one. But it kind of just depends what you like. But I think all these matches were kind of in the same range. These final three. Um, I, I guess you know it's it's one of those things where. From the on from two different wrestlers or on another spot on the card, I think you'd be more than happy with this level of match. In the main event, from these two who have proven time and time again what they're capable of, I could see being disappointed with that. Like, if you're a person that's never seen the show and on paper, you're expecting like, you know, the sky's the limit. Put your limits lower than this guy. It's it's not going to be that kind of match. It's if you adjust your expectations, you will enjoy this match. Um, 
I think the interesting thing about this, you were talking about the the length. This is a match Ring of Honor didn't really have often, right? Where it's I was thinking about this. So this is a bit of a pre uh setup, but thinking back to the main event of the first show, the era of honor begins for people that don't remember the story of that show, where going into that show they had their the two big top matches were you had Eddie Guerrero versus Super Crazy, and you had Brian Danielson versus Christopher Daniels versus Loki. And I think when we studied that show, the, the, the talk was they did not know, like they were debating internally, like which of these two matches should go on last. And I feel like in a lot of indies, the, the thought would be you put the stars on last. Like Super Crazy had a, you know, a, a name from ECW and Eddie Guerrero had a name from being working in like every major promotion and was already a big name. And, you know, it was somewhat of a low scale dream match. And they chose instead to uh, put the three guys and, you know, Danielson, Key and uh, Daniels were already, you know, the most probably the t- three of the biggest names on the U.S. Indies. But the U.S. Indies in 2002 were not even as big as the U.S. Indies would be in 2006 or 2014 or anything. And it was kind of a, considered like a gutsy call. They put those guys on last. And what happened was, you know, I would say Eddie Guerrero. And super crazy. They did not have a match as good as AJ and Joe just had, but a match kind of similar of it was not a bad match. It was like their second tier effort. It was the effort they would give on an indie show. And obviously everyone knows the three young indie wrestlers tore down the house. It was absolutely the right move. And I feel like that kind of became Ring of Honor's identity and selling point right from the start, which is the idea of we're not one of these many indies where the selling point is you get to see the big stars slum it. You know, th- th- they might occasionally come by and they might occasionally not give their 100% performance. But why you come to Ring of Honor is you're seeing the best unsigned wrestlers in the world give 100% because they're, tr- because they're unsigned, because they're trying to get noticed, because they're young and can go all out like that. And I feel like when you look at this main event, not is it shorter than usual, I think this is one of the rare times on Ring of Honor where you're watching a match and you go, I'm not seeing their best match. Like, I'm see- like in a way, I feel like this is the kind of match where even though it was not a bad match, if I'm Gabe Sapolsky, I don't like the idea of having this kind of match on main event my show because it's a match where you watch and go, oh, I could see a better version of this in TNA. And I feel like Ring of Honor's selling point is you're seeing the best of something. And, and, and in a way, it kind of degrades Ring of Honor a little bit. Like, again, I don't think the match is bad by any means, but like, am I crazy for thinking that? Hmm. I think there are people, there would be people that agree with you. I think you might be overstating the case a bit. Um, I, I mean, it didn't hurt Ring of Honor in the grand scheme of things, yeah. but I do think, like, again, going to your point, like, we've rarely seen a match this short or. But, uh, but I, but I, to me, the short was a, was a positive here, like in my opinion. Like I think that made the match better personally, as opposed to them like trying to have some epic. Because um, even their best matches in TNA were only like a few minutes longer than this. You know, um, their first ROH match wasn't much longer than this either. Um, I-, I think that I get what you're saying that this wasn't their top effort, but I think it was close enough. Like I don't think this was way way below what they can do. I think it was a tear down from what they could do and that they did not have the context in ROH to have, you know, like this big intense match at their full peak level. And I think like this in some ways was a better effort than what we've been seeing from both of them in ROH uh, lately. So 
I don't really see this match as being a strong example of the point you're making, I guess is what I would say. I think there are other matches that both these guys have had that might be a better example of that. Um, but I, I get, I get what you're saying. It's not, it's not their top effort. I think that probably the logic here was whether, whether it's true or not, this is a TNA crowd. And so we're going to give them a TNA match and AJ's leaving and that'll carry it through. And it's okay if they don't have their all time best match because they're going to have a darn good one. And I think they did have a good one. You know, I, 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 I definitely think there are bigger examples of people not living up to the ROH name than this one. Um, yeah, if it was up to me, maybe like in hindsight, would I have maybe made the Kenta match the main event? Um, maybe, but it's not like the quality between those two matches were so disparate that it would have made a huge difference. I think most of the crowd was pretty satisfied with what they got here. Yeah. See, um, I, I, I like the match being compact, like 12 minutes, like you said, but I, I guess my one little bit of a disagreement was you did kind of feel like the match did not feel like if I did feel like the ending felt abrupt, like, Oh, we're not, we're going to give you like, like I, I could easily imagine like the two or three minutes that they would have put on somewhere else. It wasn't like, it didn't feel like, Oh, we jammed everything we do into 15 minutes somewhere else into 12 minutes here. It was more like, ah, eh, we'll cut off the end of this, you know, we've done enough. And which again, it, 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 they did enough to be good, but I, I, I feel like that vibe is kind of not what ring of honor is sold on. You don't want the wrestlers to be like, Oh, well we'll give you a certain level. Cause you're ring of honor, but you're not TNA, you know, which again, I don't blame those guys for the same way. When we talked about the Christian matches in ring of honor, I don't blame him for holding back a little, like absolutely by this point, TNA was a bigger priority for people. And it's interesting because this is the first time ring of honor really had this situation, right? Where normally when wrestlers outgrew ring of honor, it meant they got signed by WWE and they just left. It was a clean break. And this is kind of like the first guys where guys like AJ and, and Joe and other guys were like, they have now have a bigger priority in TNA, but we're in a period where TNA still allowed them to work ring of honor. Right. So we have this weird position where it's almost like, Usually in, in, for the early years of Ring of Honor, Ring of Honor was like guys top priority unless they had to go to Japan for a while. And in that case, they would just disappear for a while. And then when they came to Ring of Honor, that was like their top priority. And now we're getting to a point where there are a bunch of guys where their bigger priority is, is somewhere else, but they're still here. But it's yeah, just but, an but, interesting. Yeah. I think we've been talking for a while about how Joe and AJ and Daniels were not their best selves in this era of ROH. And yeah, and I think, you know, not that they, I don't appreciate their contributions, and, and Joe definitely has a bunch of really good matches between now and the time he leaves ROH, but, you know, there is probably benefit to be had when they finally leave, and they can, yeah. ROH can put all their focus on guys who ROH was going to be their main thing, you know, and where they were going to give their absolute best effort, and they didn't have to save themselves for anyone else. Um, and so, but it, the fact is, we've been... Ex- We've been seeing this from these guys for a while now. This mm-hmm. is not the most egregious example of this. Um, there's been a lot more. This is just what you expect. In fact, yeah. it's more surprising when you see a match with these guys in ROH at this point where you're like, oh, this is really like the full Monty. I'll be very curious. That means that they're going to strip, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, but I'll be curious to see if um, when we rewatch the 60-minute match from Fight of the Century the next night, you know, how we kind of assess which version of Joe we got in that match. Because, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't really remember well enough to say. Um, 
but it'll be interesting. And again, when I say that it's not the full Joe, like he's still great, you know, like, I, yeah, yeah. you know, my dad loved watching him fight. So I, um, <laughs> so I, um, I don't know. I guess I, I see your point. I don't, I just, I just don't think this is the best example of it. I, I, that, that, that's my main, you know, issue with what you said. It's not like I disagree with you in the big picture. And the one other spot I forgot to mention, I wanted to bring this up too, is when um, AJ is in the midair and Joe on a springboard and Joe catches him midair with an ace crusher, but he only uses one hand. And I thought, man, someone should have caught that the RK Joe because I, you know, RKO, it's funny, but, uh, (laughs) um, can't can't argue with that, Trevor. <laughs> so you know, um, it, it, you know, it, it's weird. Like AJ is a fairly significant name, and it is weird. Like we touched on this before, how he leaves, where his bookings just kind of slowed to a dribble, and there's no like there's no if you're just watching the DVDs, there's no indication that he's about to be gone until this you buy this dvd and watch it but and, also but also he was barely there in the first place yeah, you yeah. know it's like, like so it's like him, be, just, him being gone feels you know as, as great as he is feels completely insignificant and like nobody was really lamenting it you know because he just yeah no one thought of him as an roh guy to begin with at this point yeah his bookings just kind of slowed to a trickle and i guess you know he, you could argue uh, should he have tried to put someone over on the way out should they have tried to use him to put someone over on the way out but who knows if tna would have allowed that and i guess in theory the match against davy richards even though aj1 was supposed to be him kind of giving the rub to someone on the way out but we know that that doesn't <laughs> didn't necessarily work out but um after the match, we get a video package recounting the history of AJ Styles and ROH, ending with a uh, caption that says, thank you, AJ. So generally when wrestlers end their runs, uh, we, we, we talk about them a little bit. Uh, we already started talking. So I'll just say like recapping AJ Styles' run in Ring of Honor. Um, I think I underrated his first like pre-Feinstein scandal run, and I think his return run after they sorted things out with TNA – is exactly how I remembered it. So, uh, you know, in that early run, like the first years of Ring of Honor, he was one of the most well-rounded, smoothest wrestlers available to the Indies in those first few years. Like, watching those the first year or two of Ring of Honor, it was one of those things where I think we know us re-watching. Like, there are a few wrestlers where they were so fantastic that, like, they were on par with any wrestling in the last 20 years. And then a lot of other wrestlers on the undercard, it was like, they were good for their time, but, like, they weren't either, you know, be it they were not as physically impressive or, you know, or did not have good gear or were just sloppier. Like, it felt like it took a few years of Ring of Honor for the indie wrestling scene as a whole to kind of catch up to those few names like the Danielsons and Lowkeys of the world and Christopher Daniels. And I feel like AJ is another guy who could put his name there is like he felt like a few years ahead of the rest of the indies. Like he was just that level of polished and well-rounded and good and those matches with like paul london and um the and low-key and the three-way with paul london and low-key like all that stuff in the first year he was in ring of honor still holds up really great stuff and then the second run you know it's not terrible but yeah it is as we've talked about he is clearly not putting ring of honor as first priority you don't feel like you're getting that absolute top tier and when i try and think of highlights from that second run like even stuff that's some of the more remembered notable stuff of his second run like against the jimmy ray feud like that feud pales in comparison 
to the Jimmy Rave CM Punk that happens right around the same time. So his overall, best, his, like, be- his best stuff probably was either tagging with or wrestling against Matt Seidel. That was probably the best stuff he did in this second run. Yeah. So overall, it's like I, I kind of was left thinking about his career. Like I think a big what if for AJ Styles and Ring of Honor would be well, two things. One, what if he um if he doesn't have TNA, like what if he's more like some of the other wrestlers we've seen where they were kind of like WWE or bust? What if Ring of Honor is all the way his first priority for a few years? And what if, you know, TNA does not pull him when they did temporarily? Because remember, when he got pulled at, at the end of his first run in Ring of Honor, he had just become the first ever pure champion. And they were setting up in storyline the idea that like AJ Styles with a pure title was going to be a 1B to Samoa Joe and the world titles 1A. Like they were going to be almost equals and like building up a feud over time. And then once AJ leaves, they kind of have to sort out what's to do with the pure title and becomes very quickly established as more of a mid-card title. It, to me, it's a real interesting what if to think of what if AJ is, has ROH as his first priority and what if he, you know, what if he sticks around then like, is the pure title in a different spot? Is, you know, do we think of AJ's ROH run? Again, I think AJ had a perfectly good ROH run, but do we think, you know, if AJ is just nothing but ring of honor, first priority for four years straight, five years straight, do we put him in the pan? Is, does he have a run worthy of being in like the pantheon of a Joe, of a Danielson, of, of those kind of guys? I, and I think that kind of stuff's interesting to think about. Well, I think you just got to look at his TNA run and I, and I you know, cause that was his first priority. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, he did have a really incredible run in TNA, right? Like, that he did yeah. establish a legacy there. So I feel like I don't know why, you know, AJ being who he is, it wouldn't have been the same for ROH. You know what I mean? So I think yeah. the answer is yes. Um, as far as the pure title, I don't know, because I think it is very hard for a company to really have two co-equal titles, even as we've seen in WWE when they're both technically the world title. Yeah. Um, you know, a one always ends up being positioned higher than the other in any era that you could think of. So I, I you know, I, I don't see the pure title with the rules being what they are as maybe getting to the heights that maybe Gabe imagined them to get at the very mm. beginning. But, you know, with AJ, the thing, you know, as great as a lot of his matches were in that first run, you know, he was always thought of as a TNA guy, you know, because, yeah. you know, he debuted in ROH in April of 90, of 02. And TNA started in June of 02. And from the very beginning, AJ was one of the people synonymous with TNA and would be for many, many, many years. And, you know, I don't think you could ever come out of that. But that being said, you know, he did have a lot of great matches those first, that first maybe a year and a half that he was in ROH, you know, with the. You know, the matches, the early matches with Loki, the matches with Danielson, especially that first match with Danielson, I really thought was amazing. Had a really good match with Xavier, you know, obviously the stuff involving Paul London, some of the tag matches with the amazing Red. Um, and, you know, those are all great. Um, but that said, you know, if I'm being completely honest, if you remove those few guys from the equation, you know, he didn't have so many other great matches with such a huge variety of opponents. You know, like he had good matches with Punk and with Homicide, but not like top, top level, you know, great, memorable, best matches in, of Punk or Homicide's career type stuff. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. His matches in ROH with Joe, the two of them, you know, the first one was better than the second, but neither of them were as good as their best matches in TNA. Um, you know, AJ was 
fantastic, but he was a TNA guy. And so I think that, you know, he contributed to ROH, but I don't think anyone's going to look at him as being like, all right, this was one of the absolute pillars of ROH. I, I just, you know, uh, not saying he doesn't, not saying he doesn't deserve to be given a lot of credit, but I don't think people think of him that way when, I, when it comes to Ring of Honor. And it is funny to talk about this because, like, one of the criticisms in early ROH was TNA. You would hear there was a couple reports of, like, some people in TNA, like, uh, officials were, like, frustrated with guys like AJ Styles, chief among them, and Christopher Daniels because they would always put over, like, how much fun they had in media interviews in Ring of Honor, like, more so than they were putting over TNA at the time. Like, it was almost like – like, back then, there were some people in TNA that had the opposite criticism of AJ, which is, like – you're giving them as much or more than you're giving us, but I think that quickly changed as TNA started to grow and it really became clear like this is going to be a viable career for you. It's not just another stop. TNA, well, I think, you know. Yeah, I think what AJ in that first run, what he was able to do for RO, in ROH is like he was able to have like longer matches, more mat based matches where he could be stiffer and do like harder hitting stuff, whereas he saved a lot of his most spectacular fast paced matches for TNA even early on. Um, I think that that worked out pretty well for AJ because some of those matches that he had in ROH in that first era were more story-based, more psychology-based, stiffer. The mad stuff was really good. And I don't know if we would ever have really gotten to experience that from AJ if we just watched his TNA work. So I think it was a, the, his ROH stuff was a really good complement to what everyone else saw in TNA. Yeah, that's an excellent point because when I think of AJ Styles and ROH, my favorite stuff he does isn't like the athletic stuff because there's a lot of athletic stuff in Ring of Honor. There always is. It is him being kind of like this kind of grumpy prick that's like hitting people hard. Like he had a kind of edge to him, especially in those early years of ROH that I think people sometimes forget. Yep. Yeah, and I really enjoyed. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point that he was allowed to. Maybe that's a, Ring of Honor was a place where he could explore that more. Where the early days of TNA, he was probably more pigeonholed as you're an X division guy. Give us go out there and give us ten minutes of flips. You yeah, know? exactly. Shorter and and you know definitely the impetus was do high spots. You know. Yeah. So um, we go backstage now to join the Briscoe brothers. Jay says Kent approved nothing to them tonight, and Davy Richards proved he's nothing but a flash in the pan. Jay also says they haven't forgot about homicide and his Yankee ass. Uh, Mark says they've talked to Mr. Cornette, and they're getting their tag straps, whether it's in Jersey tomorrow in the Ultimate Endurance match or in England for those shows. Man up. So hey, Matt, that's almost the name of the show. And then um, we cut to Samoa Joe backstage who uh, says he had one simple request for Brian Danielson, meet him like a man tonight, face-to-face. Joe says, you think with all the respect that he and Danielson have for each other, Brian would have granted him that simple request to look Joe in the eye and see his destiny. Joe says, tomorrow a new champion is crowned. As they say, everything old becomes new again. Joe then walks outside to the big uh, rider trucks where he finds Colt Cabana making out with some girl. He's got his back to us and the girl's on the other side of him. Joe throws his towel at Colt to like get his attention. He's like, hey, douchebag. And I'm like, you're interrupting a guy making out. Like, aren't you kind of the douchebag, Joe? Like, oh, let, the guy do, let the guy do it. Let the guy have his thing. And anyway, the girl just flees. We don't get a great look at her, but it's pretty clear. Come on. It's, it's Lacey. So we're continuing the uh, Colton Lacey in secret tryst angle if joe really if joe really wanted to interrupt people making out he should have said get a room 
<laughs> exactly. But again, I, I, reiterating what I said earlier, I love that the show, the, 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 the go home angle for Joe Danielson is Joe calls Danielson out. Danielson says no. Joe goes, oh, okay, and then finds Colt Cabana making out with somebody <laughs> and gets annoyed. <laughs> and it's like, tune in next time for the fight of the century. Oh, okay. All these <laughs> ideas that could have been used uh, for the to build up the Okada match. And just um, bef- and before you before you uh, you know wrap anything up, I do want to remind everybody, if you can, try to let Danielson know that if he wants to send a message to us, he has to do an airplane spin in the Okada match and say, "This is for you, Trevor." <laughs> oh my god! So um, somebody listening, I'll- somebody who listens to this in the next couple days or the next, let's say, day and a half probably has access to brian danielson i mean i think we we're, that's we know that and um next we get a blown out shot of the olympia the building in england that they're going to be running soon as we get a to- we get told coming soon ring of honor in the uk which yeah is two shows for now so that is time to ban up the first half of a double shot bigger show the next night um matt um I think there's, you know, there's a lot of, like, for me, I, I know I like the top matches, a, like, one notch less than you. I think we both agree that nothing quite got to great. Um, this is, you know, a good B show in that, I, I, again, I found myself saying, like, everything, almost everything on this card was, like, three to three and a half stars to me. Like, everything is just, there was very little I found even an average. It was just, like, this is a very enjoyable you know there's not gonna be a lot of big highs there's not gonna really be many lows it's just you're gonna get a kind of nice it's a smooth ride if if i was charting my enjoyment of the show as like a line graph it'd be a very smooth line yeah this is better than i remembered because i remembered it being just sort of like a down show but it was it was definitely you know a very b show you know absolutely like a bbb show but yeah it was just solidly entertaining this is nothing that you know, any, nothing can't miss on this show at all, for sure. But if you are a fan of this era and you watch it, you'll be solidly entertained the whole time. I mean, you know, I know it's a broken record, but this was just a good era for ROH. The worst stuff was good, you know. And, you know, the the last Long Island show really was like a bad show. Like, it was like the worst yeah. of ROH at this era. But this was – no, this was good. Like, this was a good show. And – um you know, that kind of surprised me. I did not remember this being particularly good, but I would say it was good. So, um, you know, way to go, ROH, for keeping that uh, that quality control high where even your lesser shows are quite solid. And if you're a Ring of Honor history nerd, this is like a weirdly kind of trivia-worthy, like, consequential show in the sense of it's the last time, you know, again, AJ will wrestle in Ring of Honor for like three-quarters of a decade. It's... um you know, it, it's, you know, Kenta taking on the Briscoes for the first time is kind of, it's Nigel's last pure title match before the unification, unification match ever. Cause he's in a non-title four way the next night. So this is kind of the end of an era for the pure title. And for Nigel, the last time we kind of see him get to do this act, you know, in a way. That's a good point. And, That's a good point. It's also, you know, the night that my dad gets up to com- some completely <laughs> innocent hijinks. In the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and even like it's Steve Carino's return to Ring of Honor for another run. Like, the, you know, there's lots of little, like, if little bits of significance, nothing too crazy, but, um, and that's the show. So, 
as always, if you want to contact us through the years at gmail.com, that is T-H-R-O-H for through. On Twitter, I am at Trevor Dame. Matt is at Mayor M-G-F. He is the mayor of something. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> I'm trying to think, is, do we plug anything else? No, I think we're good at that. So No, I'm plugging, um, I'm next- plugging my 40th birthday, which will happen between now and the next time we record. So say a prayer for me. Send Matt gifts. Um, I don't know. Not, not, not gifts. Gifts, gifts, gifts or G-I-F. chips. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, I'll, t- so, I'll, t- I'll um, take gifts. So it's fine. <laughs> so next time on the show, we will be covering Fight of the Century, which is named because it's Danielson and Joe, and they end up going 60 minutes. So that will be a wild thing. I don't know. If, you know, I don't like to pre-announce guests because you never know if they might back out. But we uh, right now have plans for a first-time guest to the show, which I'm very ex- excited about. And uh, that show also has Davey Richards versus Kenta. So a lot of stuff to look forward to. That was the show. So long, AJ Styles. Until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.